Southern Skies. Online Media. This episode is dedicated to the memory of our friend, Charlie Wilworth, of the Flight Time Radio Show. Gentleman, air traffic controller, broadcaster, and Piper Cub enthusiast. Sadly, Charlie left us recently, and the aviation podcast world will be a little quieter from now on. Charlie, clear to leave the control area on climb, frequency change approved. This episode of Plane Crazy Down Under is proudly brought to you by Runway by Oz Runways, the Android EFB you've been looking for from the makers of Australia's most popular electronic flight bag. For your free 30-day trial, search RWI in the Google Play Store or visit ozrunways.com. And by the Australian-New Zealand edition of Spotters Magazine, the new e-magazine showcasing high-quality aircraft images from around Australia and New Zealand. Available for download each month direct to your PC or delivered straight to your iPad. Produced by aviation enthusiasts for aviation enthusiasts. Subscribe free at spottersmag.com. Well, good day, folks, and welcome back to Plane Crazy Down Under, episode 122 of Australia's Aviation Show. Well, back from Las Vegas, Los Angeles, and, well, lost just about everywhere else, I think. I'm Steve Vischer, and joining me as always, a man who's done a fair bit of travelling himself overseas, it's Grant McHeron. How are you, mate? Hey, not bad, mate, not bad. How are you doing? I was always going to say a man who's uh, been around the block a few times, but I didn't think that'd <laughs> go down too well. Yeah, well, you know, it depends on which block. I am trying to jog and lose weight, uh, but not with jogging. I hate jogging. <laughs> not with jogging, yes. Well, how are you, mate? Mate, geez, it's been so long, you know, I almost can't remember how, how to do this. Oh, I'm scratching my head over it. It's uh, We haven't pod-faded, guys. We're not dead yet, but we're certainly snowed under with a lot of work. So, yeah, sorry it's been two months since the last episode. Yes, let's not labour on it too much, but let's just talk about what's been going on. We've had a lot, a lot of emails saying, guys, what's going on? Well, uh, basically, we're still both working at the same company as we were working at, but uh, we both have, uh, well, in Grant's case, I think an expanded role, and in my case, <laughs> basically a completely new role, and it's taken up a lot of our time. That's right, mate. Um, I'm basically uh, Head of Aircraft Airworthiness and Maintenance Control for two AOCs, um, also the um, Compliance Manager for the main ballooning company, and that basically means I'm the Assistant to the Chief Pilot, doing all that's required there to keep everything in in shape. Uh, we are transitioning to a new chief pilot at the moment. And as if all that wasn't enough, I've also turned around a, uh, a Car 30 repair shop for balloons. So in all cases, it's meant a lot of documentation writing, a lot of work with CASA. Um, it all paid off recently when we had some work to do had to do a drop everything to get some stuff squared away with an aircraft and did about two weeks worth of normal work. It would normally take a couple of weeks. We got it done in three days. So uh, that was pretty impressive. Well, what have you been doing all the rest of the time then? Uh, sleeping. Oh, fair <laughs> enough. Well, yeah, well, there's nothing wrong with that. And of course, uh, well, I've been overseas, did my trip to the US and uh, yeah, well, I've sort of, uh, we won't talk too much about railway work, I guess, but uh, yeah, I've basically moved into a more uh, managerial position. I was uh, working for a while as a classroom instructor at the uh, railway organisation I worked for and now I've sort of moved on to where I'm sort of overseeing the operations at three depots in Melbourne, South East, and uh, it's taking up a lot more time. You know, Grant, when I was driving trains I had a lot more time on my hands maybe there's uh, maybe there's there's something in that perhaps 
<laughs> ah, yes, but the shift work and the and and the having that lot more time on your hands did, did sort of weigh on you after you'd had a, a taste of what it was like to be a manager. Yeah, yeah. Well, I don't know that I'm really comfortable uh, sort of, you know, wearing the white shirt in the railways these days, but, um, you know, it's, it's, <laughs> it really has been a lifestyle choice. And, uh, you know, it is nice to uh, be spending a lot more uh, time at home with my family and doing uh, normal person stuff, that's for sure. But, um, you know, it's, it's a lot more hours and um, that's unfortunately it's uh, really impacted on our ability to produce this show. Not that we haven't been getting a lot of interviews here and there, which just taking the time to put them together. So, uh, you know, fine. I said we weren't going to labour on that too much, Grandpa. Here we are doing it. So, well, let's... Well, let's... hey, hey. On, on a better note, on a better note, since we last got an episode out in the start of October, I've had about six flights taken balloons out. I've done my um, biannual flight review, so that's cleared me for another two years of flying balloons. Uh, taken a couple of friends out, including uh, one of the gentlemen you're going to hear on this episode, Darren Craven. He uh, owns a windshield, and uh, he and I went up for his first ever balloon flight over Bacchus Marsh. That was a lot of fun. So, uh, yeah, I think I've uh, accrued about another six hours of flying in two months, which doesn't sound like much, but for a hot air balloon, that's quite a bit. Oh, that's awesome, mate. That's awesome. I mean, most of you would know, that, I guess, uh, from, from my flying standpoint, I've actually been doing a fair bit of it this year. In fact, I'm now a card-carrying RAOS member and uh, still uh, working on that conversion. But then I went overseas and, uh, you know, went on a big family holiday. But, uh, Grant, I actually uh, managed to get a couple of flights in over there, one uh, over San Francisco in a Cessna 172S. Really grateful to uh, Fred Sampson, a, a local listener who, uh, you know, resides in the San Francisco area and uh, has an aircraft out there at Palo Alto. And uh, uh, he was a very, very generously uh, took me for a flight out over San Francisco Bay. It was just absolutely awesome. And uh, I must say, Grant, um, I've got a lot, a lot of hours in 172s, but um, I've never actually flown one with a glass cockpit before. So was uh, that was really interesting, actually. But uh, I try not to get too distracted from that because uh, San Francisco was a beautiful city uh, to, to drive around on the ground, but uh, to fly over and it was basically on dusk. And uh, we right over San Francisco Bay, um, we actually uh, were cleared through the class Bravo there. And uh, it was just absolutely spectacular. And a few laps over the top of the Golden Gate Bridge with the sun going down in the background, uh, you know, over the ocean. It was just absolutely spectacular. Oh. And uh, it was just really, really wonderful. And then to top that off, Grant, thanks to uh, Airwork Las Vegas, a local FBO out there, and actually part of the uh, Open Airplane Network, Rod Rakick's Open Airplane Network. Um, yeah, I got to uh, fly and, and a slightly older 172, and uh, that was uh, fantastic out there. So, uh, we, you know, we got to fly out and, you know, not over, but out towards Area 51, I guess. And just, uh, <laughs> yeah, we didn't get shot down, so obviously we made it back, but to actually managed to stick the landing too. I know that one, Grant, so it was actually pretty good. We oh. walked away from that one. So, well, yeah, thanks to the instructors there and uh, you know, thanks to Rod Rakey for organising that for me. It was uh, fantastic. So great to get some 172 time, Grant. I've been really enjoying flying this uh, fly synthesis uh, Texan that I've been flying out at uh, Turretin Airport, my local airfield. But uh, I must say, climbing back into a Cessna 172, particularly the one in Las Vegas, which was a nice uh, steam gauge model, a little bit older. It just felt like strapping on an old, comfortable pair of jeans, I must say. I, I really do just, <laughs> you know, if, uh, to be honest with you, folks, if anybody would like to donate a Cessna 172 to me, you know, I'll send you my address. Just send me an email. I just, uh, I'm, that's all I really want to fly. I'm quite happy with that. Yeah, we are looking at you, Jonesy. <laughs> yes, yes. Well, we should say that the PCDU uh, aeroplane fleet has expanded. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you're stretching it to say it's a PCDU fleet, but hey, what the heck, I'm in. Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, yeah, Ben Jones, uh, Jonesy, our uh, WA correspondent, once again ventured across here to the east, and uh, he's uh, been going through a rather arduous process, I guess, uh, by his own admission to uh, purchase a, uh, a Cessna 172 of his own. He's picked up a 1974 model, I think it was. Um, a beautiful aircraft in really, really good condition. And he actually flew, picked it up at Bacchus Marsh here uh, just west of Melbourne and uh, flew it all the way back to Perth over the course of a few days. Got a lot of little mechanical glitches along the way, I think, but uh, and some weather issues. But uh, yeah, they finally made it there. And that aircraft, I believe, is sitting over at 
Derek Jandicott or somewhere like that now. So, uh, yeah, I'm jealous, me much? I'll tell you what. Yes, I am jealous, Jonesy. I may not ever speak to him again, unless I'm in Perth, of course, <laughs> in which case he'll be my best friend. <laughs> Especially if the plane's airworthy. <laughs> yeah, no, it's a, it's a really, really great uh, looking aircraft there. So congratulations to uh, Ben Jones and his brother. I think you've bought that in partnership and uh, yeah, just uh, just a wonderful thing. On your Jonesy. So anyway, Grant, uh, we should get into this episode. It's uh, another long one. You know, we, I guess, folks, um, if we can't put them out as often as we'd like, at least when we do put one out, we'll make it a mega one. You can sort of split it up with your pause button and listen to it over the course of a few days. And we, we certainly hope that's working for you all. Now, let's talk about some of the things that you've been doing. Uh, I guess uh, Avalon had their media launch for Avalon 2015. Uh, coming upon us very, very quickly as we record this, and you, you were out recently at the media launch. That's right, mate. I uh, shot myself down to Avalon to hang out down there and uh, catch up with a lot of friends, actually. I uh, met some new folks, but also met a lot of the pilots and uh, and friends from the Tarmac Ops and organisers and so on that, uh, yeah, we've known for a while, and it was really great just to walk in and walk on up and have a few people go, hey, wow, you made it, you know, and all this kind of stuff and sort of try and figure out who invited me because they didn't want me there. But no, that was a separate thing. <laughs> uh, but yeah, it was all good, mate. It was all good. Uh, it was in the big old maintenance hangar that Qantas used to use for their 747s. So uh, there's a bit of echo and a bit of noise at times, a uh, bit of wind on the day, quite a bit of wind outside, actually. So that plus there were vehicles moving around. They had some of the reenactment people there with uh, everything from like Boer War and World War One all the way through to World War Two and Vietnam gear, um, some half tracks and various other vehicles such as that. So it was pretty cool. And, uh, you know, in addition to some of the pilots, it's also caught up with uh, Gordon Rich Phillips, who in- incidentally is also, of course, a commercial pilot with a multi-engine command instrument rating. But uh, he's in, in government as uh, the he's been on the show a few times and uh, he's very much into aviation and was the minister for uh, promoting aviation industry here in Victoria. Uh, the recent election, of course, saw the Liberals out and the Labor Party in. But uh, Gordon has kept his seat and he's currently in opposition. Yeah, I say that uh, despite, uh, you know, what people might think of the politics one way or the other um, he, I think he did um, quite rightly I think uh, deserves uh, some credit for um, the work he did for the aviation uh, sector here in uh, Victoria uh, during the time in government uh, so you know he seems to be reasonably popular amongst most of the aviators that we talk to that have interacted with him so uh, good on him yep. for that and uh, yeah so moving on but Grant I see down the list here this is this is the one I'm looking forward to and well actually folks now of course I've already edited this so I know what it is but you actually spoke to Trapo Jeff Trappett now I tell you what Grant that is a coup mate <laughs> I've been meaning to catch up and have a chat with Trapo for quite a while. Uh, I've known him through the uh, the tarmac work back in the uh, Avalon days and caught up with him uh, back at Winds over Illawarra where it was really windy and had a quick chat with him there. But uh, it was all pretty running around and uh, we were at the wrong end of the airstrip when things started happening with his Sabus. So, uh, yeah, finally got a chance right at the very end. He was my last interview that I recorded, and yeah, it was good. Uh, he had his uh, C-47 re- restored. It's a 1946 C-47, uh, complete with all the data plates, and uh, he's painting it up to look like an AC-47 uh, from the Vietnam era. And uh, he had his P-51 and his Sabre there, so it was pretty much air trapo in that hangar. It was, it was quite impressive. And uh, folks, I know you'll enjoy this interview with uh, Jeff Trappett, former Royal Australian Air Force pilot and former Qantas pilot. Um, I tell you what, uh, he's very reluctant to talk to the media 
I think he had a bad experience uh, quite some time ago, and uh, he's he's been very reluctant to talk to anyone in the media ever since. So it's it's really fantastic, and uh, I know you'll enjoy listening to Trapo Talk. Now, of course, I was over there in Las Vegas, um, and obviously there was an air race on there, the Red Bull Air Race. It uh, actually was a bit of a fizzer in the end because, um, well, basically the winds took care of the race, and uh, it sort of uh, ended up being judged on the qualifying results uh, from the day before. And uh, you know, uh, Pete McLeod from Canada was uh, judged the winner. I think uh, he probably would have liked it in better circumstances. But uh, yeah, it was still a, a fantastic event. Really interesting to see it there on a uh, on a basically over a motor racing circuit. Uh, interesting experiment. It'll be interesting to see what Red Bull think of that in the wash-up from this year's season. But uh, I did manage to get some great interviews there. Um, we have had them out in our uh, social media feeds at the time, but uh, we've put them together here as a package. So I spoke to uh, Kirby Chambliss, Matt Hall a couple of times, uh, Matt's uh, ground crew, of course, as well. Hannes Arch, the Austrian world champion, Michael Goulian, always a pleasure to talk to him. And uh, at the end of it, Grand, I spoke to Rod Rakic. We mentioned him earlier and a great chat about Open Airplane, a really great organisation over there that uh, Rod started and uh, that's uh, basically allows you to have a universal pilot checkout where you don't have to keep uh, spending money on check flights. You can go, I think, uh, in, in excess of 70 operators around the United States at the moment where you can go and use your universal pilot checkout. A really interesting concept. Uh, there have been some questions asked about um, some certain issues there which uh, I actually went through as Rod and uh, always great to talk to him. So uh, yeah, folks, um, I'm going to include it in this uh, in this particular episode, even though it's uh, not specifically something Australian, it's certainly something that I'd like to uh, see come over this part of the world. And uh, let's hope that uh, basically Rod can uh, organise something like that. Yeah, it'd be great to have it down here. It uh, could really help get a lot more people flying uh, when you could actually use your pilot's licence anywhere in the country without having to go and uh, reset the uh, the various tests that they want you to do in terms of uh, you know showing you can fly the aircraft. But hey, we'll see. Of course, they'll have to call it open aeroplane when it comes down here, but that's of course. a different story. Of course. Now, Grant, while I was across, uh, you know, over in the United States, um, well, you were actually, uh, you actually snuck across the pond to New Zealand, across the ditch. That's right, mate. I uh, zapped across the ditch and got met by Errol Cavett and uh, we shot off to Motat where we caught up, that's sorry, the Ministry of Transport and Technology. Hadn't been there since 1981 and mate, there's some amazing work that's been done on restoration. A lot of aircraft uh, been getting the attention they need. Still lots of work to be done. Still lots of great stuff going on but uh, yeah, it was great to see that they're starting the major restoration on my dad's old Sunderland. So that was wonderful. I made a quick phone call to him and was chatting to him about uh, how Q for Queenie was looking. From there, we went to, of course, naturally to a pub and a bunch of us having a few drinks and then uh, stayed at Errol's place on the Saturday night. And on the Sunday was the main reason I was over there. It was the Wings Over New Zealand Forum gathering at Ardmore Airport in at uh, New Zealand Warbirds and absolutely fantastic time. Some great topics, great discussions. They had some veterans there. There was supposed to be a couple of uh, veteran uh, Spitfire pilots from World War II who were going to get their flights. Uh, a bunch of the Wings Over New Zealand Forum people had chipped in to uh, pay for a couple of flights for them. But unfortunately, the weather just wasn't quite right for the uh, two-seat Spitfire to fly. So uh, they got their photos taken around it and then it taxied away. And it was just uh, during November that they actually had their flights. Uh, absolutely amazing. You can hear more about this on the Wings of New- Over New Zealand uh, show that Dave runs. And, of course, uh, he's been releasing the content from the forum on the, his show episodes. Highly recommended to have a listen to. I did get to chat with Brett Nichols, who picked up a couple of uh, ex-Kiwi Strike Masters from Australia that wound up in Australia. He uh, purchased them there. He's now got uh, two Strike Masters, uh, should be online and going by now. 
he had one up and running joy flights and the second one was taxiing on the day and uh, should have been cleared to uh, join in the joy flights. They're going to start doing a bit of Top Gun maneuvering, air, air combat type of stuff if you want it and can afford it. But uh, the highlight for me was uh, going for a ride in a de Havilland DH-83 Foxmoth. Absolutely beautiful old 30s style aircraft. This particular one built in the early 40s in Canada and uh, Graham Wood was the pilot. Uh, got a bit of a chat with him about his uh, career and the aircraft and uh, yeah that was really really good I also had a quick chat with Grant Newman who uh, wound up sharing the cabin with me the Fox Moth has a two-seat cabin just behind the engine and in front of the pilot so absolutely magic time flying in that one really was like I was back in the 30s I, I took ages for the smile to go off my face after that flight I tell you the other thing was I didn't record a chat with Melanie from uh, Aviation Tours New Zealand uh, we've mentioned them before on the show and one day they'll, they'll come on uh, it was towards the end of the day and Melanie was just handing me some information. They're organising a planes, trains and automobiles tour of the United Kingdom in July 2015, which does include Duxford's Flying Legends Air Show. So uh, if you go to aviationtoursnz.com, then you'll find all the information you need there. Absolutely fantastic, mate. Well, that's a, that's a huge intro to a huge show. So Grant, uh, without any further ado, I think we ought to get right into it. Jeff Trappett, welcome to Playing Crazy Down Under at last. Welcome to you, old chap. <laughs> Been meaning yeah. to have a chat with you for quite a while. Uh, hey, you've got uh, a good little uh, heritage sitting here in the hangar. Mustang, Sabre and a Goonie Bird. Yeah, well, the, uh, the Decatur, of course, is the uh, 1944 version, you know. It's a late model. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's a, but it's all World War II service, so it's got actually combat history. Yeah. So yep. it's... Uh, that modern word war bird it is actually a real war bird yeah, yeah. yeah. and uh, the Mustang CA-18 it is an Australian built one built here at Fisherman's Bend and probably test flown out of, at one stage here out of Avalon uh, it's built in 1948 post war and um, the one good thing about the post war Mustangs is they were keeping people in employment and sort of stretching out the line a little bit so they're beautifully built not a ripple down the side of the thing, you know. I've, uh, some Avalon's back, I remember you did allow me to sit in that cockpit and it's oh, did I? beautiful. <laughs> yeah, you must have had a weak moment. <laughs> yeah. uh, so, and then uh, the Sabre. The... Well, the Sabre, we've only had it, we flew it 12 months ago. Uh, and once again, it's a Commonwealth Aircraft Corporation product. It's got the Rolls-Royce Save-On engine in it, uh, which was in fact built under licence here at CAC as well. They, of the non-afterburning Sabres, they're generally acknowledged as probably the best-performing Sabre of the uh, of the lot. I know the Canadians but, like to say that it was theirs, but oh, well, they tip them out of just that fraction. Yeah, I, I don't really know, uh, I, but I think the late-model Canadian ones were sort of on a par with these. You know, everyone seems to think theirs the best, but of course they, they made beautiful aeroplanes as well, so... They were in the same situation, I think, but they made a lot, lot more than we did. Still quite a few of the Canadian ones flying, relatively speaking. Well, it's beautiful and it's great that you're keeping it flying and uh, well, definitely thanks. a labour of love, mate. It is a labour of love, but the Sabre requires a team. You know, uh, you've got to have engineers even to start the thing up. And uh, it's f- full of um, early generation hydraulic systems, so uh, they all require maintenance and attention. Um, so, you know, you don't just get in and... And blast Kick off. The tires like the fires and yeah, no, no <laughs> such thing. It's a sort of for each flight. There's a lot of work. So Trapo, 
you've got three beautiful aircraft. <laughs> you, you clearly Thank you. the uh, the Sabre, as we just discussed, a big team to look after it and uh, well, not knows? cheap to run. No, <laughs> no, they're uh, expensive to run. Yeah. They burn a lot of fuel, and fuel's expensive these days. Well, that is the question. I mean, I, I was speaking to Glenn Nichols in New Zealand about his um, his Strike Master. Right. And uh, that runs at um, about a thousand litres an hour, roughly. Yeah, it probably burns a bit over double that. Yeah. An hour. Yeah. Yeah. So two thousand litres of Avtur an hour. That's not cheap. Two dollars thirty-five a litre. Ow. <laughs> so um, yeah. yeah. So you, they are expensive. Yeah. How'd you get to this point? Uh, what's your flying back? Thirty years of hard work. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I originally started in the Air Force as a Dakota pilot, as a matter of fact. And um, I went from there to Caribou. So I did 21 years in the Air Force and uh, 20 years in Qantas International on 747s as a first officer. These days, uh, still flying? Or? Oh, no, no, I've retired for uh, about five-ish okay. years ago from yep. Qantas, but yep. I'm still flying these, obviously. Oh, yeah. yeah. And uh, any plans to do any formations with the RAAF Sabre? Well, yes, uh, should I be invited. Uh, you know, it's a matter of getting the two aircraft at the same place at the same time. Tricky. And a matter of, uh, you know, who's current and who isn't. And uh, yeah. there are other issues involved, like currency of the pilots, for example. And um, Tamora Sabre still belongs to the RWF. So um, it uh, operates under fairly uh, rigid guidelines. And I have my own rigid guidelines, so, you know, but, well, I think generally you could say, yes, we're hoping to get them together at an appropriate venue. That would be wonderful. But then, but then we're at um, 4,000 litres an hour. <laughs> yeah, we just double the cost. <laughs> yeah, so, uh, yeah, you know. Yeah. But, yeah, hopefully one day we will. Yeah. Um, it would be nice to be sitting yeah. on the wing of the, of the other one, that's yeah. for sure. So um, we've spoken briefly about fuel burn. Um, What's what's the uh, what's the typical speeds for the Sabre for rotating? Well, clean, lightweight, uh, you rotate at about uh, 115 knots, and uh, you're lifting off about 130, 100, um, and the heavier you are, the yeah. the more the greater the speed. But that's a ballpark figure for lightweight operations. Okay. Yeah. And uh, typical approach and stall and so on. Um, 150 knots around the book, around the corner, what we call from downwind area to finals, about 150, and once again, depending on the weight, but it varies from 120 out to 135 knots okay. touchdown speed. Yep. Okay, it takes a little bit to slow down. And... Well, yes, and they don't have anti-skid. You know, they're an early generation jet, and as you can see from here, they've got narrow tyres, so they're uh, they have a high footprint. Yep. So you have to be careful. Um, it's very easy to flat spot a tyre, you know, yeah. particularly if you're operating on short runways. Okay. But uh, having due cognizant with all that, they're a beautiful machine to operate. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, it looks fantastic and it oh, sounds thank beautiful. You. And uh, it's great that you're keeping all these beauties in the air. No worries. What's, is there another project coming up? Is there anything you're able to tell us? About? Oh, not really. I've, I've got a couple of things we're fiddling with down there, but we're not serious about them yet. Okay. <laughs> oh, that's cool, yeah, mate. Thank no you very right. much for your time. Yeah, it's a pleasure, mate. Cool. Paul Bennett, welcome back to Playing Crazy Down Under. How are you doing? Going good, mate. How about you? Yeah, not too bad, mate. Not too bad. She's a little windy and a little noisy in here in the hangar. A little yeah. windy, a little low cloud, and yeah. a bit of Avalon weather, I guess. Totally. Good one day, crazy the next. Yeah.
Mate, uh, standing here next to your Wolf Pits. Now, I understand the only the closest it's got to being a pit special is that it, Pits is in the name and uh, the wing was originally designed to go on a, on a Pits. Yeah, it looks like a Pits, but it's, you know, really totally different. Never came out of the Pits factory. It's built by Steve Wolf in America. Similar to a, a similar looking to a Pits S2S, but, you know, as you can see, a lot of different parts to it. The cowl's different, the wings are different, the fuselage is a different shape, the canopy's different. The tail plane, the elevator rudder fin, everything's different, <laughs> everything's really. Different. Undercarriage is different. <laughs> so, um, you know, it's got the big ailerons for obviously the fast roll rate, good for reversing and tumbling maneuvers. It's got the huge elevator and tail plane, huge rudder. Looks like it's got a pretty powerful engine in it, given the maneuvers you were doing. 400 horsepower is always helpful. Yeah, so it's a light aircraft, light pilot, big engine. Yeah, it's only 600 kilos, so it's, yeah. you know, the power to weight's fantastic. Yeah, Most monoplanes are a lot heavier than that. You were doing some nice uh, hovering manoeuvres and all that. Yeah, yeah, it does it really well. Yeah. Now, uh, you did your classic uh, knife edge on takeoff. Uh, you're hanging on that prop pretty well there. What's your out if the engine hiccups or has any problems? Oh, I can actually make it back on the runway if I have an engine fire. It uh, might not be the perfect landing, but I can get it back on from that speed. Cool. And uh, so from there, you, you did quite a spirited display for us, uh, quite a bit of hovering in there. Is, uh, is that that's kind of new on uh, some of your displays, isn't it? Yeah, well, it's good to show off the, the power and, you know, the, the control surfaces have got enough authority to be able to hold it where you want it. So it's, uh, you know, I'm trying to explore the envelope of this aeroplane. It's it's uh, got a lot of potential to do some pretty weird and wonderful things. So yeah, that's what I'm working on. Yeah, and uh, I noticed one of the manoeuvres, uh, you were up towards the northern end of the runway and came up the top of a climb and just pushed forward and over and did a forward tumble. That was uh, quite yeah, spectacular. Yeah, forward flip's pretty cool. Um, it, it does them quite well from all different sort of angles. Yeah. So, yeah, that's that's things I've been working on is trying to incorporate forward flips into some of the, some of the standard manoeuvres. Yep. And uh, so you're going to be uh, doing more of this when you're down here in Avalon uh, next year? Yeah, for sure. I'll, yeah. You know, I'll get several months to develop more things. So, yeah. you know, I fly every day developing more manoeuvres. So I'm sure we will have come up with a few more things <laughs> come you, February. How do you find it compared to the pits in terms of handling? Is it a, a bit a bit more likely to bite or is it a bit more um, It's It's got more potential. Um, it, it doesn't, you know, I mean, yeah, it can bite, but, uh, you know, all the same principles. The way you fly, it's still all the same. It's just got a bit more potential. It's easier to land than the, than my other two pitches. But, uh, yeah, all in all, very good thing. I like it. Okay. So we get to see a lot more of this in the coming uh, coming months and years. As yeah, you... for sure, yeah. Cool. And what else is new in the, in the world of Paul Bennett Air Shows? Well, we've been busy, you know. We had the Rathmines Catalina Festival recently and the Tamworth Air Show which, you know, those shows we've had five and six aeroplanes at, so with the Avenger and the Wirraway and the Yak-52, the three-pit specials, we've got our formation, three-ship formation, the Sky Ace is going really well. It's been very popular. So you're up to three? I've only ever seen you doing two. Yeah, we got the three going, so it's working out really well. Excellent. OK, well, it sounds like you've got your own little Air Force happening there, mate. Yeah, it's good. You know, we've just got to keep getting enough shows to keep it all going, and yep. and that's what we're working on. There's a there's a lot of things coming up. There'll be an air show at Maitland next year, which obviously we're uh, we're going to try and make that a pretty good event. So, yep. yeah, now we're looking forward to the year to come and, and uh, do as much flying as possible and put on a good show for the crowd. Cool. Well, thanks, Paul. I'll let you get back to your uh, prep for departure. No and, worries. Uh, looking forward to catching up with you again in the future. Thanks very much. Talk Cheers. soon. Darren Craven, welcome to Playing Crazy Down Under. How are you going? Yeah, good, thanks. Excellent. Now, you're uh, flying the Windjill, and I understand you've been flying them for quite a while. I have. Uh, we've owned our own Windjill for approximately three years now, 
and I've been flying them for about 13, so starting to get the hang of it. <laughs> just, start, just starting to get up to the point where she does what you want. I don't know if we'd ever say we'd get to that point, but <laughs> starting to get on top of it. Well, uh, how'd you get started in flying to begin with? I've wanted to fly for as long as I can remember and uh, eventually got to the point where I could afford it. I actually started learning to fly here at Avalon. I did up to my GFPT at Avalon. There was a school here. That was a long time ago. That was a long time ago. Yeah. It was about 16 years ago. Yeah. Funnily enough, at one of the Avalon air shows, Geelong Airport, I had a tiger moth over here and they were doing a display and they said that the tiger moth was available for training. So as soon as I could, I was straight over there and onto the tiger moth. Nice. And then I just sort of progressed up through the different uh, tailwheel type aircraft till uh, got to the windshell. Okay, so you, you've mostly been a tailwheel from the start kind of guy? I, right from the start I wanted to fly the warbirds, so nice. I sort of planned out what I had to do and yeah, that so, was it. So you got Tiger Moth, you got Windshield, what other uh, aircraft in the warbird world have you flown? I've flown the CT4, the CJ6 and Anchang, uh, the Tiger obviously, the, uh, I've done a little bit of time on the Chipmunks and uh, trying to think what else, the Harvard. Yeah, the Harvard is uh, quite a good trainer. Yep. yep. Uh, keeps you honest, as they say. <laughs> Very. It's, it's like if you can fly the Harvard, then everything else is a piece of cake, right? Well, several people have made the... They say it in jest, I guess, but probably a little bit of reality. Go and get yourself a couple of hundred hours on the Mustang, <laughs> then you're ready to get into the Harvard. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I've heard that from a few folks. I could believe that as but well. The P-40 as well. The P-40 is a gentleman's aircraft, compared to the, especially compared to the Harvard. Uh, yes. Yeah. Well... The group that got me into the Warbirds uh, up at Mariba, North Queensland Warbirds, uh, they've only just recently sold their Kitty Hawk. So that was their progression through the Windjill into the, the Harvard, then into the P40. So why Windjills? What got you started with them? Well, like I said, the uh, group up at Mariba had the uh, Windjill available yep. and they offered training in it. So I thought that's a that's an excellent step um, getting into the Windjill to move up into the other aircraft. Okay. And uh, so you it, and you just sort of started flying it and fell in love with it and decided you'd stick with it. Yes and no. It's uh, <laughs> it's affordable. <laughs> it, what, out of well, is any aircraft affordable? But <laughs> relatively, <laughs> relatively, the Windjill is one of the most affordable of the uh, the radial type warbirds. Yeah. Uh, realistically, it's a it's a good aircraft that uh, the wife and I can go away in. It's a side by side aircraft, so. It's a lot more sociable than, say, the Harvard. It's worked out quite well because we've got the uh, formation team that we do displays with, the CT4s and the, the wind shields. So I saw you at Tyab. We've fitted in well with them, so it's worked out well for us. Awesome. And uh, I've heard of some people doing, um, in fact, I've seen it, a uh, four-place with a couple of kids in the back of the yes. wind Yes, well, a lot of people may not know the fact that the windjill actually came with a third seat. The RAF had an idea that they could train an extra pilot, give them exposure to the, the flying. I think that only worked for about two courses and they figured out it probably wasn't going to work. So it also gives people the option they can fit the, the fourth seat in the back as well. You can, you can put it in quickly and just take it out quickly if you want. So it's sort of like a, a 172 in that respect. It's really a two-seat aircraft, but occasionally you can squeeze a couple of lighties in the back. Apart from the fact that you can actually load it up pretty well. Okay. I can fit the wife, myself, full fuel and approximately 125 kilos of baggage. That's a fair whack of baggage. That is a lot of baggage. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> For those of us used to full fuel two people and uh, a handbag, you know. <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> it's funny with the windshield. You can feel the weight when you're taking off, but once you get into the air, you don't notice any difference at all. 
Well, that's a good segue. What are, what are the figures for the wind gear? What's the typical unstick speed, stall speed, things like that? Okay, well, I guess talking about weight, all up weight, uh, the maximum takeoff weight is 2,100 kilos. We can't quite get it up to that. We're just about maybe 50 kilos under that. That's just because of the, the weight and balance. It's a very respectable amount. Oh, it's very respectable. That's a, a ton. <laughs> I mean, yeah, that's a lot. And it's a, it's a good weight, actually, because... Uh, it's not the fastest aeroplane in the world, but having a little bit extra weight really helps when you've uh, got some bad weather. Yeah. It helps ride the bumps. Taking off in a wind gel, generally you're lifting the tail up approximately about 40 knots. 60 knots is around when it wants to fly. You generally let it fly when it wants to fly. Stall speed's quite slow. Uh, it's 55 knots with no flap. Um, then it comes down with each stage, it comes down by two knots. So what do you get it down to then, about, what, 50, 45 area? Or? Uh, when we land, we're aiming for 85 knots on final, uh, 75 over the fence. Reality is you can bring it down a little bit slower than that, depending on the weather. But you were saying, so 55 drops two, two knots every notch. Yeah. How many notches have you got? Uh, well, there's two stages, okay. and then there's a third emergency. We right. don't use that, though. Yep. It really does fall out of the sky if you put that down. <laughs> Barn doors are out, yeah. Yeah, pretty much. Okay. Cruise speed, we generally plan on about 115 to 120 knots. Yeah. And endurance, about three and a half hours. Yeah, just a bit more than most bladders. Uh, a lot more than most bladders. So <laughs> it starts to get uncomfortable. We try to stick to about two and a half hours, really. Yeah, uh, it's a good, good, yeah. It's a good leg. Yeah. Okay. And uh, now you mentioned that you're doing the uh, formations and so on. So yes. how much training did you go through for formation? Well, once again, because I knew I wanted to fly warbirds, pretty much as soon as I could, I decided, what do I need? Aerobatics, formation, etc., etc. So and tailwheel, obviously. So pretty much I've done about 15 years of formation flying. Realistically, once hooking up with uh, the guys that have been involved with the RAAF, that's really brought the, the skills along. It's like a master class, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Cool. So where to from here? You've got your own, own wind gel. Any, plan, uh, any other plans? Yeah, the, the next plan is to uh, get ourselves to Harvard. Mm. Okay. So, yeah, then slowly move up. <laughs> I look forward to bringing you on the show in the future when we uh, get that Harvard happening and uh, other aircraft. So I look forward to the Harvard happening. <laughs> yeah. I'll keep us posted on how you go, mate. Will do. Cool. Thanks for coming on the show. Is there anything else you'd like to say? No, I think that pretty well sums it up, really. Cool. Thanks, Darren. Appreciate your time. Thank you. Gordon Robinson, you look like a man who's used to flying a lovely aircraft like this uh, DR1 replica. You look like uh, you're able to handle it pretty well. How long have you been in aviation? Uh, I've been in aviation since I was 16, and I started learning to fly in 1974. What did you start with? Beach Musketeers. Nice. Hmm. Yeah, I've I've seen them. I haven't flown one. Yeah. Yeah. And from the Beach Musketeer, it's all been GA work and... It was, but I was in a couple of GA charter companies and a, a regional airline that folded many years ago and I got into another small regional airline that was taken over by another company and it eventually grew and it became um, part of the Qantas group and I recently retired as an Airbus captain nice. in, uh, in one of the uh, major airlines. Okay, nice. So from sti- side stick to a uh, German it's World German War I one fighter, yes. Nice. I understand you flew this down from Queensland here to Melbourne? I did. We left uh, Monday lunchtime from Caboolture. Uh, we flew to Clifton for some fuel, then to Moree where I overnighted. And then I departed Moree the next morning down to Narrabai for some fuel, then across to Narramine for fuel. I waited there a few hours because it was a bit hot during the day. Then flew down to Tamora and overnighted in Tamora. And the people at the museum at Tamora were very good to me. 
and then I flew from Tamora on the Wednesday down to Benalla, sat there, talked to the fellas at the museum there for a while, and they were very helpful, and then I flew from Benalla down to Bacchus Marsh, and then uh, got permission to take it into Point Cook where we overnighted on Wednesday night at Point Cook. We were waiting for Cassidy to give approval for the grass runway here at uh, Avalon. Um, it hadn't been approved when I'd arrived, but it was approved subsequently in the afternoon. And then um, the people at Point Cook at the museum there were very uh, good to us and put the Fokker in the, in the hangar there. And then uh, I flew it across yesterday to here. That's quite the journey. A yes. bit of an epic to get here. About 12 hours of actual flying time. And two hour legs? About two hour legs. It was the best you could do because of the fuel consumption on the aeroplane and the limited tankage. So it was never designed for long range. <laughs> And uh, what's she cruise at? She cruises between about 70 to 75 knots. <laughs> Not exactly a, a distance aircraft, but uh, must get a lot of attention. And uh... It did. Everywhere I stopped for fuel, people came to take photos. <laughs> the only time people were... Not, oh, even at uh, Narrabri early in the morning, people still turned up and took a couple of photos. So uh, it's an unusual aeroplane. It's the only one flying in Australia. It's painted all red. And it so it well. sticks out pretty well. And people would uh, wander up take a couple of photos, have a quick talk to me and I'll refuel and then I keep going. Okay. What's, she, what's her unstick and stall speeds? Are they... You can't see where you're going on the initial takeoff roll because the middle wing blocks the view and you can't see where you're going as the tail comes down on landing. So what you have to do is line up, straighten the aeroplane, hold the stick back, power up the engine and start accelerating down the, down the landing ground, looking out to left and right to keep straight. At about 45 knots you ease the stick forward to get the tail up and once you get the tail in the flying position you can see over the middle wing and you can see where you're going and then you lift off around 60 or so and then away you go. So it's pretty standard speeds? Pretty standard speeds, yeah. And for landing, what, what are you doing on, on uh, approach? I fly it a little bit faster, I think, than Andrew does just because I'm not experienced as he does but I initially fly base and turning on the finals at about 80, slowing to 70 and then slowing down towards 60 in the flare and land it on its mains only. You don't three-point the aeroplane, and then let it decelerate, and let the tail just drop gently to the ground, and once the tail's on the ground, to stick fully back and start braking it, looking out to the sides to keep straight again. So, where you're going. so it's got brakes set up. It has brakes, yes. Very handy when you don't Very have handy. walkers. Yes, yeah. <laughs> How does she perform? Is she nimble? or? It's a, it's a nimble aeroplane. It uh, could probably do with a little bit more power because it's not the original type of engine in it, and that's not as a criticism. It's just um, it uh, rolls reasonably well uh, in calm weather. It's quite a nice aeroplane flying, but in a hot, turbulent, bumpy day with a lot of thermals, it's a little uncomfortable because it's rolling around the sky a little bit. So it gets tossed around. It gets tossed around, yeah. Yep. How is it getting a feel for what it must have been like back in World War One flying these aircraft? Yeah, it's on a hot summer's day in Queensland, it was uncomfortable, uh, but... On a cold day, I left uh, tomorrow, it was 13 degrees, and that was quite chilly. But sitting in the open cockpit with a 70-mile-an-hour breeze in your face, uh, the wind chill factor still. So flying these on a winter's day in Europe must have been not a pleasant experience. And going to altitude. And going to altitude, and someone shooting at you at the same time. And what do you wear when you're flying it? Depending if it's a hot summer's day, I'll wear a light jacket to keep the sun from burning my arms. But on a cold morning, I've got a, a shirt, a, a jumper-type thing underneath, and a coat. And then a full helmet, um, leather helmet that Andrew has with a face mask that comes across, and that keeps, and a pair of goggles to keep the wind off me. And yet the cold still gets in. The cold it? still gets in, and I have gloves, uh, but if you're trying to change frequencies on the handheld radio, you've got to take your gloves off, punch the buttons, and then put the glove back on. And so that's, uh, but you don't do that very often. So uh, yeah, you've got to keep well, even on a hot day, I have a jacket on just to protect yeah. from the heat. Yeah.
And uh, speaking of radios, do you get much attention when you're uh, calling in as a Fokker triplane? Well, fortunately, most of the country aerodromes I went to, the times I arrived, there wasn't a lot of traffic. And um, I did come into Narromine and a fellow came past and had a look at me. Um, he'd seen me coming and heard, I think he heard the call. But other than that, I've been very lucky. There's been no other traffic around. Okay. And uh, do you actually make the call as Fokker? Yeah, I do. I just say it's a Fokker triplane, and I'm sure they don't. People might uh, not quite hear what I said because they're expecting Cessna or Beach or something like that. Um, but yeah, I make the standard calls. I do get the same kind of reaction sometimes when I'm calling, you know, hot air balloon. Hot air balloon. Yes. yes. Yeah. <laughs> Everyone's like, okay. Yeah. Well, if you make a ten mile call, you got to tell them you're not going to be there for another eight minutes. So they probably forget you by the time you've arrived. Yeah. Frequent calls. Frequent calls. Yeah. Is a good thing. yeah. Cool. So you're looking forward to the trip back. <laughs> I just need a bit of a rest first, and uh, yes, we'll yeah. see how it goes. Yeah, I imagine yeah. you're pretty numb it, it's and pretty vibrating. Tiring. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, good luck for the trip back, and thank you for your time. Thank you very much. Andrew Carter, welcome to Playing Crazy Down Under. Thank you. Now, we've just spoke to Gordon about uh, bringing this beautiful DR1 down from uh, Queensland. You're the owner of it. Yes, that's right. How'd you go about actually buying this aircraft? Basically, I've had an interest in aviation for a long period of time and been involved in, in it in one way, shape or form all my adult life. And like most of us, I suppose I started with plastic models and one of the first ones I remember was the DR1 Fokker triplane of the Red Baron. Uh, I've had an interest in vintage aviation for a long time, so I bought a Pete and Pole Air Camper in 2009 and, and that sort of revived my interest in, in vintage style aviation. It wasn't until 2011 when I went over to a market where the Kiwis and, and the Vintage Aviator Limited are obviously doing absolutely amazing things. And watching them perform there, and I remember thinking, well, the centenary of World War One's just around the corner, and no one in Australia is set up for anything to do with the aviation side of it. We're all going to be talking about the Anzac spirit and the Anzacs at Gallipoli, but what about the air war? There's no government body, no museum, no state or federal government-funded uh, body that's done anything about that. Uh, there's a couple of camel replicas floating around, one at the, uh, the Point Cook Museum and one at Tyab. Uh, uh, there's no, tiger there's, moths. Yeah, so basically there's two pups. Yeah, oh, sorry. And they were pups, built in yeah. 1979. So yeah. of the two pups, one is out at Riddles Creek and one is owned by the uh, museum, yeah. as you said. I thought now, there was one at Tyab. No, the two went out to Tyab for the air oh, show just recently. Okay, that was actually yep, So Riddles that was Dave Creek. Marshall's from okay. Riddles Creek. Uh, now, both of those are not authentic. They have a metal-built structure. Yep. They have a modern radial engine in them. That's not to take anything away from them. They still give, you know, the appearance is very accurate and the performance yep. is very accurate, and that's what we need to be able to demonstrate to the public. We need to be able to recreate this history. So, yes, those two pups are very good. What Nick Cordwell's just done with his Sopwith Snipes, very, very good. About the only truly 100% authentic aircraft in Australia is actually at Serpentine, south of, uh, south of Perth. And it is a Sopwith Pup made of actual parts from Sopwith Pups. And in fact, the windscreen and the joystick and the engine of that particular pup come from the pup they've modelled it after. Wow. So that's probably the only truly authentic one in Australia at this stage. But we're getting ahead of ourselves. So uh, I realised that no one in Australia had done anything to commemorate World War I. And so I've established the Australian Vintage Aviation Society to, for exactly that role. That is our purpose, to bring to life aircraft from the World War I period, to demonstrate them to the Australian public, and to let them know what the designers, the builders and the airmen of the day were up against. Yep, and where can we find uh, you guys online? I imagine you've got a website. Yeah, www.tavis.com.au. That's T-A-V-A-S.com.au. Okay. And that has the full history of the, the aircraft we're dealing with now. So. Here we are in front of the Fokker DR1, 
Uh, this has come from Florida. So what we needed to start the organisation was an aircraft that would be instantly recognisable, that would instantly attract attention, but it had to have a very strong Australian connection. So we've chosen the Fokker DR1 because, and this particular one, 425.17, is in the colours that Manfred von Richthofen wore in the aircraft he was flying when he was shot down. What very few people realise is it was not a Canadian camel pilot that shot the Red Baron down, it was actually an Australian gunner, most likely Sergeant Cedric Popkin of the 54th Machine Gun, sorry, 24th Machine Gun Company. Uh, it was Australian who shot him down, it was Australians who were first to the crash site, it was Australians who souvenired stuff off that aircraft, most of which now exist in the Canberra War Memorial, uh, and it was Australians from 3 Squadron who actually buried him with full military honours. So we find this an incredibly significant aircraft. It's representative of the highest ace, highest scoring ace of World War I, but it is also has strong Australian significance. So we bought it out of Florida, and we were told at the time that it was a ready-to-fly aircraft. In fact, the owner said to us, it's so good and so safe he'd let his family fly it. Once it arrived here, we could only determine he mustn't have liked his family very much. Uh, it took us about a year to do all the work. All the cables had to be replaced. Um, flying controls inspected, a lot of work done to the surfaces, um, the engine, stupid little things like you had a 50 amp fuse, sorry, 15 amp fuse where a 60 amp fuse was required and things like this. So we have an incredible engineer, David Walsh, who devotes a lot of his spare time to this aircraft and in fact everything in the collection. The aircraft is accurately built in that it is a um, welded tube steel fuselage and built up wooden wings made to the same specifications as the actual aircraft. The engine is a modern Lycoming engine. It has brakes for safety and a, and a tail wheel, which we find is good for convenience, but we are going to make it far more authentic. So to that extent, we actually went and had a rotary engine reverse engineered in New Zealand, which was going to go into this aircraft. But since then, we've been lucky enough to obtain some of the Arkham Engels collection from Germany, and these are 100% authentically built German Fokkers. And so the rotary engine that we have had reverse engineered is now going to go into the Eindecker. The Eindecker will be as good as one that came off the production line in 1915. We've actually gone and sourced the fabric from the same family-run business that was making that fabric for Eindeckers in 1915. That's fantastic. Yeah, so we've gone to a lot of trouble. Uh, the engine is a 100-horsepower engine, and that will be powering it and that, that will be our big surprise for the Avalon Air Show. That's what we're bringing down. That'll be unique. That Nothing like that will have ever been seen in Australia before. Oh, you're right. We'll be bringing down a D8 which will have an original 1918 rotary engine in as well. 160 horsepower gnome. So obviously the Kiwis have been running a couple of D8s uh, for a couple of years now but this will be the first time one's been flying in Australia. Do you spend much time in contact with the vintage aviator? The guys are very very helpful. Um, I've been over to Masterton and I've met everyone from the guys who work in the fabric to the guys who work on the instruments to the, the people who support it to the pilots and every single one of them has been very very helpful and you know, given a lot of their time and, and a lot of good advice to us and we're very appreciative of that. They want to grow the pie they don't, they don't see you as competition they see you as, as expanding the knowledge and helping out let, let, let's make sure this is completely understood there is no competition for tval tval own the niche right tval have created something truly unique and they have gone on to inspire people around the world including our organization our organization is a direct 
offshoot of having seen them perform, as I said to you. So, no, they don't see, I don't think they see anyone as competition. Uh, they are very encouraging of people who are trying to do this sort of work around Australia, around the world because they understand just how difficult it is. You've got the uh, DR1, you've got the Iron Decker coming along, and uh, was the other one? The, D8. The D8. We have a D7 as well, but we haven't really commenced work on that. We're still trying to source an engine, and we're so busy getting these aircraft done for Avalon that uh, the D8 probably won't, sorry, D7 probably won't start mm. construction until middle of next year. So you're focusing uh, big time getting ready for Avalon? Yes. Avalon's the big dot on the horizon. Every All eyes focus on that, but do you have any thoughts after Avalon, what you can tell Yes, us? we do. No, no, we can't actually tell you. We're, we're hoping to make a big announcement at Avalon, and we hope to have bringing another unique aircraft to Australia at that stage. Um, details to come. We're still in negotiations over that. But we are continuing to build the fleet, and as I say, we are making them as accurately as possible so that people get involved, they can actually touch them, they can smell them. The smell of burnt castor oil is quite unique. They hear the unique sound of the engine. They can see how these things actually performed, and they get an actual feel of what these guys were up against in the day. Which is really fantastic, and we need yeah. to we need to hold that heritage. I'm a big fan of that. Well, that, we've also now started to branch into the pre-World War One. I don't think people understand just how truly significant the pre-war era was in aviation, how significant the four years of the World War I was because the, the learning curve was exponential. Huge. And then uh, the advances that happened after that time uh, were incremental. You know, they probably weren't as big. People talk about... When people think of vintage aviation, they think of the Tiger Moth like mm. that's behind you now. What you forget, though, is the Tiger Moth was de Havilland's 82nd design. So he learned a hell of a lot in the first dozen designs um, before he perfected something like that. So we've actually gone and got a 1911 uh, Johnson monoplane, the, the Johnson Brothers of Marine Outboard fame. They actually built an aeroplane in 1911, not ever having seen one before, and they built their own 60-horsepower motor for it. So we've got a, an accurate reproduction of that, which we'll want, eventually want to get flying as well. But uh, we are concentrating on the pre-World War I period and the World War I. Obviously, our focus is at the moment is World War I because we have to be ready for the Avalon Air Show. Exactly. Yep. Andrew, thanks, mate. Looking forward to seeing you at Avalon. Thank you very much. Cheers. And now it's time for Timbo's Tarmac. Well, it wouldn't be an Avalon uh, coverage if it didn't have a Timbo's Tarmac. Timbo, how are you doing? Uh, well, glad that it's over. It's yeah. been a busy two days, uh, and we've always got the usual changes. We got fried yesterday, mm-hmm. and we got frozen today. Frozen and windy, and well, yeah, would have been interesting to see some levitating tiger moths. But I reckon we could have got one to hover today if we had a try. <laughs> I think we could have, <laughs> if we could have got it out into the uh, into the tarmac. It probably would have been blown off onto the highway by the time we got anywhere near it. Exactly. <laughs> so, Timbo, you've been down here with a bunch of the other larrikins on uh, tarmac and looking after and positioning aircraft, because I understand there was a bit of a shindig in here in the hangar, big old hangar six, where they normally have 747s. Yeah, no, Qantas have all gone now, so a lot of empty space. So, yeah, there was a, uh, a corporate event down here last night, so we positioned the aircraft for that and then mm-hmm. pulled them all out and flew a few today. Not yep. as many as we'd hoped, but we got a few in there, which was, no, all, was all cool. good. In. A little bit breezy and windy uh, out there for those of us in the media posse, but, uh, you know, we got to stand on the combat jet tarmac. I don't get to do that very often, even when I was working uh, airside. At you ta- must be very privileged to stand oh, on my piece of tarmac. Yeah, right? I, your piece. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> that's right, because, yeah, we weren't on the combat jet. No, we you were on, on the light jet tarmac, yeah, which yeah, is the Warbird tarmac. Yeah, the tarmac. Yes, that's, yeah. my, that's my tarmac. Oh, yes. well, I'll take it back then. I've stood on that one heaps. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, it was good. I mean, we had planned a lot more aircraft to fly, but yeah. the weather was just against us today with the wind. Yeah. Had it been yesterday, they all would have got up, but yeah. uh, not to be. Anyway, we got a few in there, which was good. 
No, that's cool. Well, mate, until the real Avalon comes along next year. Not that far away. No, I know. It's only a few months. going to come up very quickly. No, no. Before we know it, we'll all be standing out there going, hey, where's that aircraft that everyone promised was turning up? Yes, yeah. well, we all all the volunteers' forms are in, so we're all ready to go. Oh, there you go. Well, we'll be down here doing the media thing. and Bat up mate, again. That's the one. Number 11. Oh, jeez. That's a, that's a hell of a lot. It is. 21 years. Yeah, I know. I know. Well, Mr. Masochist. I know. They're suckers for it. They come out every year, the forms, and we still sign them yeah, and send no, them in. I know. You'd I think know. after all this time learning, you'd do it. But, yeah. you know. We do what we do. Mate, we'll catch you then. Indeed. Well, for years, folks, we've been talking about Oz Runways and what a great EFB it is for iPad. But so many people have asked us, when are they going to make an Android version? Well, Baz from Oz Runways is with us, and he's going to tell us all about some good news for all of you Android users. How are you, Baz? I'm good, thanks, Steve. How are you? I'm very good. Now, uh, Runway, tell us about that. Yeah, it's uh, simply called Runway by Oz Runways, and it's our product for Android tablets, Android phones, Android phablets. Those uh, strange-shaped devices that are too big for a phone but too small for a tablet. And uh, it runs on all of those. So we've talked for many years, Baz, about uh, waiting for the market to be right. And obviously the uh, the Android uh, tablets and devices have, have really taken off. And so now is the time. And I know you've put a lot of work into it. You must be happy to have it finally in the marketplace. Yeah, we're really pleased with the result. And, and as you said, this year is just the right year for Android. It took a while for tablets, not phones so much. Phones for Android have been very popular for a long time, but for tablets to become really good devices, and they have this year. There's some great Android devices out. Android OS itself has been updated over the years and is now much more friendly for us developers to support all these different types of devices, which used to be a problem in the past. And so we've been able to to do it this year and in a way that we're very happy with the way that it works and the way it performs. Now, Baz has got a different name from the iOS product. Is it exactly the same as Oz Runways on the iPad or are there differences? There's definitely differences because Oz Runways, as you know, has been in development for over five years and it's a very mature product. This is a 1.0, but we've developed Runway with the experience of Oz Runways, which means that we've taken the best features, made them even more intuitive, and we're going to build on that. So if you get Runways now from the Google Play Store, what you'll get is all the maps, all the Ursa AIP depths, the AOPA airfield directory and the pilot's touring guide. It's all there. You can plan a flight, you can get your weather and NOTAM briefing, and you can use it as an aviation GPS to navigate. So it's a really complete product and, and we're just going to be building on that uh, well, over the coming years, really, but uh, you'll see a lot of stuff being added even this year. Now, Bez, what if I'm someone who's uh, been using the iPad version for a long time and decides it's time to transition across? Uh, is there a separate subscription or does one subscription cover everything? It's one subscription covers everything. So the same subscription is available on both platforms, both iOS and Android. And you can still use one phone and one tablet per subscription. So if you have an Android phone and you want to keep using your iPad, that's great. If you've got your iPhone and have been eyeing that new Android tablet, uh, you can still keep using Oz Runways on your iPhone and using Runways on your new Android tablet. I can hear all the Grand McHerrans of the world rejoicing as we speak, mate. <laughs> yeah, well, 
it's it's had a really good reception and we've got many downloads just in the first few days. We've got lots of great feedback on the store. We've got a good idea of what we're going to be adding next because people have been telling us, okay, these are the features they want to see soon. So, Bez, um, you know, you're very famous for the 30-day free trial. I assume that's still the case for the Android version? Uh, very much so. Just uh, install it from the Google Play Store or from our website, osrunways.com and say start free trial and that's 30 days no limits on uh, what you can use all the data is there so you can give it a really good trial run before deciding once again folks that's runway by oz runways a fantastic and long-time sponsor of playing crazy down under we really appreciate your support bez and uh, we we know it'll go really well for you once again ozrunways.com or find it in the google play store Okay, we're here at the Las Vegas Motor Speedway. I've traveled a long way to see you, Matt Hall. How are you, mate? Oh, I'm very good. Good to see you again. Yeah, good. And uh, you look about as tired as I am. I think this heat uh, sapping is coming from the winter weather. Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, well, it's not as bad here as it was in Dallas. That was, uh, that was pretty nasty. Uh, I think it's... Um I'm, I'm tired at the moment, mainly just from uh, jet lag and, uh, and fatigue in the aircraft and doing a lot of flying. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. We talk about Dallas before we talk about this. Coming over here to the US, how did you feel at the end of the last round there coming out of uh, Dallas? Bit of, uh, a bit of a mixed bag, perhaps? Yeah, I was pretty disappointed, actually, because um, yeah, we put everything uh, as, as well as possible in our favour in Dallas. Um, yeah, we, uh, the plane was going well. Uh, I came direct from Ascot, so I didn't go home, so I had no jet lag. Uh, and we were training really well, um, so uh, you know, we won a few training sessions. So to, uh, to place sixth was uh, was really disappointing for me, considering I thought that uh, we, you know, if we were going to win one, that was that was really looking like the one that we were going to win. So uh, yeah, a disappointing result. You know, it's still still top half of the field, um, and you know, we're still in fourth place overall. But uh, yeah, it was a, that was a hard one to swallow. Because you had a good start there in qualifying, uh, you, you came out really right at the top of the pack, and I see from the results just from training yesterday that you, you're, you're, I think you're sitting fourth, just uh, in unofficial qualifying. So I guess it's a, a similar situation again here at Las Vegas. Yeah, well, there's, there's nothing that uh, there's nothing saying we can't win here. Um, yeah, we haven't run the we haven't got the track record here, uh, but um, I'm flying. I'm probably about the most consistent person here. So. In every single run, I, I, I uh, fly a time that's about uh, you know 50, somewhere between a 50.2 and a 50.5, uh, and everyone else, uh, you know, the guys that are beating me, um, you know, Hannes Paul and um, Nigel have all run a faster time than that. They've all they've all cracked 50 seconds, but they've only done it once. Uh, so um, you know, I'm, I'm happy I'm I'm happy I'm flying pretty consistently, and uh, you know. I've, we're still we're still training. We're still got two more training sessions. We're still are looking at different things we can do, and um, yeah, hopefully I can break 50 seconds today, and then I can be uh, consistent and fast, and that's the key. I think I've talked to you before about density, height, density, altitude over here. Obviously, uh, it's, it's hot weather coming from Europe. It would have been uh, a different kettle of fish. Is that is that a factor? Yeah, it is. Um, yeah, it's something that we all have to deal with. So um, yeah, the weather is the weather, and you can't get too uh, concerned about it. We have to work a little bit on the cooling of the aircraft. Um, the the plane won't pull as much G for the indicated airspeed because your true airspeed's higher, so it, uh, the wing just won't grab on and, and get the plane turning as well. Uh, but um, yeah, they're, they're things you just you do a lot of training and you get you get a feel for the aircraft in this particular environment. This is probably the highest density altitude we've raced in. Um, it's uh, you know it's a rough calculation. We're sitting somewhere between five and five and a half thousand feet density altitude here, which. Yeah, well it's uh, you know if you if anyone does aerobatics out there, go and take your aircraft up to five and a half thousand feet and uh, and, and see what it feels like. Um, but uh, you know we're lucky they're really high-performing aircraft, and 
for the people that are watching, I don't think they'll be able to tell. Really, the only guys that can tell are us. Now, uh, for newer listeners to our show, um, I guess the first time we interviewed you, you were talking about your Air Force career. What newer listeners may not know is that you spend a fair bit of time in exchange with the USAF. So we're not that far from Nellis, are we? I suppose you'd almost be familiar with this airspace. Yeah, I've, I've done a lot of flying out here before. I've operated uh, quite a bit out of Nellis, um, both with the, uh, the RAF on deployment and also... Uh, flying F-15s uh, out of uh, out of Nellis for uh, exercises. So um, I am familiar with this area. I've uh, I've lived in uh, not lived in or stayed in Vegas on uh, on these trips before. So I know how it uh, how it works. I know where the traps are with uh, with staying in Vegas, and um, I'm able to keep myself sane uh, and not. Uh, not do anything silly out there, like uh, go and steal Mike Tyson's tiger. <laughs> well, I think I should have got some tips from you before we came to Las Vegas, because it's my first time here, and it's just mind-blowing, to be honest with you. But uh, <laughs> Well, you're uh, getting ready to uh, get out in the race. The Challenger Cup's running as we're recording this. Uh, how's, the, how's the Challenger's going? Uh, see anybody there that may come up through the ranks? Yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah, we're just being informed there's, uh, there's two two new guys uh, coming into the Master Series next year. Uh, I'm not sure if I'm allowed to tell you, so I, I better not. All right, no worries. <laughs> um, um, but, um, yeah, we know who they are, and uh, yeah, they're, they're flying really well. In fact, I was just, just watching the extra get around the track at the moment while we're talking, and, uh, yeah, it's really nice, smooth flying they're doing. And um, when uh, it, it's a different kettle of fish when you get in a race plane because they're um, they're they're a bit more of a uh, bucking bronco to to, uh, to keep in the track, but um, yeah, they'll do really well. They're really experienced pilots that are coming in, um, and uh, I think it's going to be uh, an interesting uh, series next year with uh, with those guys coming up into the masterclass. Excellent. Well, I'm going to let you go because uh, you know you're standing here in jeans and everything, and people wouldn't know you're going out in an air race in about uh, an hour or so. But um, <laughs> I'll let you get to it, and I'll catch up with you in the next day or so, hopefully. Thanks, mate. Cheers, mate. Cheers. Okay, I'm here with uh, Eric and uh, Peter from the uh, Matt Hall Racing Team, uh, part of the uh, the support crew here. Guys, uh, welcome and, uh, well, welcome, you should be welcoming me. I'm, I've come all the way to see you. Welcome. Yeah, thanks for coming. Thanks for coming. Yeah, the last time I caught up with you was at Natfly a couple of years ago and uh, you didn't. Uh, we didn't get into talking about some of your history, but uh, talking about your um, mapping software that you were making, but you've actually got quite a history with uh, racing outside of air racing, I believe. Yes, I have. Um, before air racing, I was involved in Formula One, where yep. I was the control systems engineer for Fernando Alonso when we won the World Championship. So what I did there is, um, it's a different uh, area, but it's very similar, like data collection and data analysis and seeing how you can perform things. So talking about some of the uh, the variables that you'd have to collect off the aircraft there, can you compare any of that to a Formula One race car? I imagine there's a lot of data streaming out of those race, those race cars. Yeah, typically a Formula One car will have 50 more, 50 times more data coming out and, and quicker as well. But, uh, but the, the basics are still the same. You look at performance uh, performance indices like uh, airspeed and well airspeed in the Formula 1 car is wheel speed so airspeed you've got your engine stuff and also accelerometers and stuff um, the bigger difference maybe here is that we have two cameras on board which we didn't have it, uh, in Formula 1 like them uh, another difference is that we do all the analysis post post race or post post event when the, the plane comes in we quickly have to analyze and uh, debrief the pilot which sometimes we only have 15 minutes in Formula One, we have more time, and also during the race, we have real, uh, real-time telemetry. So the data is streaming in as we go, and we can. Oh, back then we still could talk to the drivers. So uh, real-time streaming is that something you'd be working on in the future? Is that something that you've got the ability to do here with the aircraft? Well, we probably could, but it, it takes some time to set it all up. Yeah, because you've got to wait. I guess a wait penalty with all that sort of stuff. 
yeah, every every, every little thing that I, that I add, uh, Eric here is going to be going to be punishing me for it. So, well, Eric, I don't think we've ever talked to you on the show. We've talked about you on the show. Um, you've done a fair bit of work with Madden. You did your commercial license, I believe, uh, in his aircraft. Yeah, that's right. Um, a couple of years ago, just borrowed his extra, did my CPL, and and uh, yeah, he was kind enough to let me do that. So, and how'd that go for you? That, that would have been a unique experience doing it in that type of aircraft. What, what aircraft was it? The extra? Or the... Uh, extra 300, yeah. 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 yeah um, everyone what, what did was your a... examiners think of that? <laughs> yeah, I had trouble finding one that would uh, come along for the ride with me, but uh, in, in the end we got there. And uh, you're doing a lot of flying. done much flying here in the US or any at all? Yeah, so I did the ferry flight over from Fort Worth to here. That was pretty cool in the, in the race plane. Yep. How'd you find the uh, the air traffic control coming across? It's nice to have so much radar coverage here, isn't it? Yeah, they're really good, really helpful. Um, the weather wasn't great for our ferry into Vegas here, um, and they were more than helpful and got us in. Yep, no worries. Now tell us about your role here in the team. Uh, yep, so I'm the team technician. Uh, make sure the plane's ready to fly and going quick. Uh, anything from, from cleaning, making sure it's got oil in it, fuel in it, to repairing the engine. Yep. And how's the aircraft performing? Are you happy with it so far? Yeah, very happy at the minute. Um, going quite quick. I think we've got one of the quicker planes out there. What sort of um, these engines, I guess the engines are fairly well standardised these days. You take into consideration fuel calculations and all that sort of stuff. I mean, you're trying to minimise weight, I guess, when you're coming into the track. How much of a science goes into that? Uh, yeah, um, so we've got it down pat now, but there's a minimum fuel and a minimum race weight we have to meet. Um, We've actually, we actually put extra fuel in um, and use it as ballast because we're under the minimum race weight. Okay. And Matt's uh, wearing that G-suit. I think he carries an Esky or something with him. He doesn't want to keep that G-suit cool or something like yeah, that? Yeah, not inside the cockpit with him, um, but uh, before start-up, he's plugged into that Esky and it's pumping cold water around his uh, suit. So what's your routine today, guys? What uh, you know, We're getting ready to do qualifying as we're recording this. Is the aircraft pretty well set to go? Are there minor tweaks or we're going to get it out on the track? And Yeah, so by now, if, uh, if we're not ready, there's something wrong. Yep. Um, so it's... The, the serious days are, uh, are a bit cruisier in that you're just double-checking everything you've done over the past week and uh, it should be all good. If not, you're working frantically through the night. Uh, Peter, tell us about your wingmate. Was it the yes. uh, product? You may have, how's that going? Just uh... It's going pretty well, actually. Yeah, we, um, We've been developing the wingmate box for, for quite some time now because initially when we spoke in NetFly, that's about two years ago or something? Yeah, two years, yeah. Yeah, ever since we've, we've been developing it and um, we're pretty excited with the application in Matt Hall's plane where it's actually used as a sort of a gateway. It's collecting data from all sorts of sources and it's also got its internal sensors and it's working pretty well. We have connected it to a video system, so it's now a combination of video and um, and, and data from our centers. It's usually interesting because it's often said that uh, with Formula One cars, a lot of the technology that's developed through that stream ends up eventually finding its way into normal, normal road cars. This could be the same for what you're doing here. Exactly, and that's it. What, what, what we have been doing in, uh, in the last year is trying to find different applications where we have uh, the wingmate system with the video, with the VBOX system. Um, and we also have, we already have it installed in an air tractor now. So that's for uh, the, the crop sprayers. Yep. And that was sponsored by QBE. So they want to push it forward to, to get that in all of their crop uh, yeah. dusters to, to keep record of what they are doing. And if there is an incident or something happens, or even engine monitoring, yeah. they can uh, act accordingly. Well, that would marry in with QBE. They've got a big safety initiative going yeah. for Pilot 7 well, This is one of the things. So that, yeah. this is a really big thing for us to get 
to get like on board with with yeah. QDE. Well, gentlemen, I thanks for giving me some time. I really appreciate it, and we'll hope to catch up with you again before the weekend's over. Okay, thank you. Thanks. Cheers. Thanks I'm standing here with Hannes Arch, and uh, Hannes, uh, great to see you again and great to talk to you. Last time I spoke to you, you were talking about flying helicopters. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I still love it. I, I think I love it even more. I did uh, lots of hours in between. Recently, I got checked out on an uh, AS350 B3 Plus, which is really nice. cool, flying in the Alps. And, uh, and I'm looking into buying a new one just uh, just to have fun because I love it so much. So it's a tough life. So, uh, what, you know, you, you're doing the helicopter flying and now they've dragged you back here to, to Red Bull and it's uh, obviously been a good start for you once again. It's a really good start. I mean, nobody knew uh, how it will work because we got a new setup with engines, new rules and everything. So I'm quite happy that I... I could confirm to anybody that uh, that is not just uh, the engine, like everybody thought before. That is also the pilot uh, who can fly fast. So I'm happy to be like uh, somewhere in the lead uh, with the other guys, you know, and uh, not one of the slowest. And tell us about your aircraft, a new a new airplane from I guess when I saw you in Perth. Actually, um, uh, it's it's a new V3. I flew it. Uh, the last uh, year in 2010 yep. and uh, I think it's the airplane you have to have it's really a cool airplane uh, we modified it a little bit like some aerodynamic changes but not big changes it's uh, I think uh, a cool airplane we all got the same engines now and it's good for a pilot to know that you have a competitive airplane yeah so how did you feel about coming in and having standardized engines was that an, an issue for you you say it's no problem as it's turned out but were you a bit apprehensive about that coming in Actually, I, I was not quite sure about it because I know that it's quite hard to make the same engine power for everybody. So it's uh, at the beginning of the year, it's quite a little bit of lottery, like who gets the stronger engine, who gets the weaker engine. And I know that it's not just about one or two horsepowers. It's, uh, I mean, 2% or like even more, it's uh, a couple of tenths of a second. So I'm lucky I have not the fastest engine, but I think like the engine number four or five or something like that, which is competitive, like uh, that, that works for me, but it would suck if you have one of the weakest engines. So I think if the organization wants that, they still have to work on, on uh, that issue to make the most equal possible. Now we're standing here at the beginning of the qualifying round on the Saturday. How are you feeling going in? Uh, good results in the practice for you? Uh, very good results in the practice. It was very important because the last two races uh, we didn't do so good. So, uh, so I'm quite happy about that. It's building up confidence again. And I think this is uh, one of the most important things uh, when you race out there, that you're confident, that you enjoy what you do out there, uh, that you are kind of like loose uh, with your, in your mind and with your stick. And I think then you can really perform and be fast out there. And that's what I hope for today. And you've been doing a lot of uh, visualising. Are you one of those that walks around and does the visualisation beforehand or have you sort of got it set in your mind before you go? Actually, I do both. I'm working, we are working actually with a simulator. So we got the picture on a screen more or less. I'm working uh, uh, in my mind to visualise uh, the lines and the best lines. And, and uh, for sure, I'm also walking around. I mean, everybody has a strategy. Uh, you use whatever is possible, what you make, what you think makes you fast, you know. Well, I'll let you go. A lot of people here want to see you, but Hannes, thanks very much again for spending some time. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you very much. And uh, say hi to everybody. I've got the great privilege of standing here with uh, Kirby Chambliss. Kirby, um, not such a great season for you. You've had a, a bit of a struggle at the start of this season. Oh, yeah, so you had to bring that up. Thanks yeah, a lot. Sorry yeah, sorry about that. <laughs> 
No, and we're not going to get it fixed this season. We, we've got a lot of things in place in order to fix it for next year. We're a little bit behind the power curve on this. Um, to say that I am frustrated would be like one of the biggest understatements in the world, um, especially in Dallas. I thought we'd... I thought we had a pretty good shot at it there, and then um, you know some things just didn't go our way, and uh, yeah, so super disappointed. Uh, I'm a very competitive person, you know. I've won this thing twice. I mean, I've won the national championships and a lot of medals in world level competition, and so uh, yeah, I'm a competitive person, and I'm very frustrated. Being here in front of your home audience, I guess, is a real motivating factor. I know the last you're from Texas, I believe. Right, right, yeah. So that'd be a real motivating factor to get out there and, and really push it hard. Sure, yeah. I mean, I, you know, everybody's always asked me, like, when we're in Texas. I mean, I was born in Texas, and they're like, you know, you, is it special to win here? I said it's special to win everywhere. But yeah, of course, in your in your home country, you want to win too. But I want to win everywhere, and uh, so. There's, it's kind of a double-edged sword. You know, you have a lot of more media and also family and friends. And so, but you got to push all that out of your mind and focus on what you need to do, which is win. There's been a lot of talk this season about the standardization, uh, standardized propellers, standardized engines. How have you found that? Tra- was that a transition for you or are you already using this sort of equipment? Previously? No, I mean, it was a transition too for like all of us because we all had our own uh, engine builders and stuff and we could do a little bit more with them. Um, you know, to say that they're all the same is, uh, you know, there's no such thing. I mean, they're supposed to be within 2%. Um, I don't know that they, you know, I think that they're close to that. But if you have 2%, even let's just say they're 2%, 2% is three quarters of a second on the track. Yeah, and that's well, all it takes, isn't be, it? That's yeah. all it takes, you know. So, yeah. yeah. So, uh, um, we know we're a little bit slower on the straights right now. We fixed half of it. We had, uh, when we were in Malaysia, we were 10.4 knots slower just on the straights. So no matter what I would do, we were going to be slower than the front runners. We fixed about half of that now. We're, we're about five knots or so slower than the front runners. And I'm hoping to be able to make that up here on the track. How do you, you would be used to the density altitude here, obviously, coming from this part of the world. Right. I was talking to Matt Hall a bit about that earlier. That, I guess, is something that would make you feel a bit more comfortable flying in this part of the world compared to um, Europe? Yeah, yeah. I mean, well, we've all flown shows and stuff at density, you know, higher density altitude. Hell, I've flown air shows at 8,200 feet when it's 100 degrees, you know. Wow, so, yeah. and then the airplanes, you know, it's it's horrible. But the good thing about it is, is that we're all subject to the same conditions, you know. So, um, I don't know that it's going to give me a huge advantage. I mean, I think uh, these guys are, everybody's so experienced, you know, that, you uh, um, you know, everybody's quite good and, and a lot of experience doing this at different elevations and stuff too. I've been watching the Red Bull Air Race for many, many years and um, it's interesting to contrast your um, your flying style compared to, say, the British. You make a lot of very um, quick, deliberate, almost aggressive control inputs. That's obviously something that works for you. W- where did that style come from originally? Is that the way you've flown air shows? Yeah, I mean, with competition aerobatics, you know, we have a thing we call bumping off the line so all the G comes on at one time and it's to make the radiuses look the same. And for a judge, it's not important out here at all. I mean, I'm just trying to, you know, move the airplane as fast as I can move it from one gate to the next, you know. So you want to be smooth, but there's times that you just want to be super aggressive because, you know, if you take your time rolling, you're going the wrong way. You know, you got to get that airplane on its side and you got to pull it to go back the other way. Yeah, yeah. So that's when you need to be fast and aggressive. And I suppose the um, pulling into some of those tight turns with the 10G limit now, though, yeah. that can be a challenge too, I imagine. That affects us. You know, we, we, how we were going over when it was 12. Now that they dropped it to 10, it definitely makes it harder because there's nothing, you know, people think that, the airplane doesn't limit you. I mean, this airplane is set up to go plus or minus 12. That's its operating range. So it's more than happy to go over 10 Gs. And it's it happens so quick that, um, you know, it's all seat of the pants flying. I mean, from after I go through that start finish, start gate, I don't look 
down at the panel until I'm finished coming off the track. You know, there's no time. Those gates come up so fast. So that really takes a lot of judgment on you. I was going to ask yeah. you if you had a G meter in the aircraft, but yeah, there's looking. one in there, but there's no way. I mean, by the time that you've you pull on the stick, you've you've hit the G. You know, you're in it. it. It'll it'll go from zero to ten or twelve Gs in a fraction of a second. Well, Kirby, it's a privilege to talk to you and a privilege to meet you after all these years of watching you. Um, I wish you all the best for today in front of your home crowd, Thank and I uh, hope it goes well. Thank you. Nice to meet you. Appreciate Thank you. it. Okay, well, I'm here with one of the happiest, nicest guys on the Red Bull Air Race circuit, Mike Gooley. And Mike, it's nice to meet you again. Glad to be here, for sure. It's good to meet you again. Mike, um, I was talking to Kirby Chambliss. The American pilots not had the best start to the season, I guess. You've had a bit of a struggle, you guys. Um, not so much you. What's what's going on? What's what's happening? I mean, it, yeah, it's been hard for both Kirby and me. Uh, um, you know, I, I think just from a technology standpoint, our airplane is a step behind, right? And... and we have been analyzing all of my flying all year and we're looking going, you know, there might be a tenth or two here or three tenths there, but there's nothing that's glaring. So we're like, okay, the pilot's doing a pretty good job. That's good. And so we've focused on the airplane um, and we've made little changes during the year, some bigger than others. And I, I think the reality is there's no magic formula. It's just a little bit here, a little bit there, a little bit there, and a little bit there. And finally, hey, all of a sudden I've caught up. So, really, for us, 2014 is in the it's in the books, right? It, the airplane is what it is. We're going to try to do our best, but you come back next year with a bigger and better machine, and that's what we're doing now is just trying to analyze where the weaknesses of the machine are, and then uh, try to rectify those over the winter. So we come back in Abu Dhabi in the spring, just yeah. cranking away. There's been so many rule changes, and so, you know, we've talked a lot uh, to other pilots I've spoken to today about standardization, standard engines, standard props. Has it, how have you found that? Has it been a transition for you, or have you found that not really a yeah, factor? Yeah, you know, I don't find it a factor at all. It's, it's like, hey, here's the engine, here's the propeller. You know how to operate it. You know how to manage it for the race like you did the old uh, things. So it's just been, it's fine, really, you know. Um, for us, it's all about aerodynamics, and, and for everybody it is now. So if you had a pretty clean airplane, uh, before uh, you came out of the starting gate pretty well. So if you look at Paul, has got a good machine. Uh, the MXs seem to have um, a little bit um, sort of better performance than they did before, maybe because of that we took the Quattro away, so there's more, sort of more long speed runs, so it might make the MX a little bit better. But uh, yeah, it's really, it's, it's all about carbon fiber now. Taking away the Quattro and some of the... I talked to Matt Hall about this uh, earlier in the year, and I said I kind of miss some of the spectacular aerobatics that used to be done in previous seasons. Uh, his attitude was, well, it's more of a race. How have you found that? Do you prefer it that way too? I agree with Matt. I think that it's more race now, and, and um, it's, it's more lines and angles and, and trying to be more like a, a racing series as trying to sort of mix in the Quattro and some aerobatic flying, and um, it's made the sport safer as well. Well, safety is a big factor, and I guess there's a, there's a wow factor that we have to keep for the public as well to get the public back in with this, so I guess that's a really fine balance. It is. Uh, you know, I think the, the wow factor now is how close and tight the racing is. So right now, I, I think you'll see this race weekend, there'll be a second between 1 and 12, and that maybe a little bit more, maybe a little bit less, and that's what it is, is it's just very, very close. So it's exciting also uh, now... You never know who's going to win. There's a bunch of different people that are capable of winning on every weekend, which is really what you want. It's been interesting, hasn't it, to see people like uh, Dolder, for example, really coming up, um, some of the others coming up there who weren't really placing so well in previous seasons. And like you yep. say, now everybody's sort of 
anyone can win it. Yeah, you know, it's a, it is a team sport now. So there's a lot of data analysis stuff going on. There's, there's people watching everything. So you just have to have a very robust team. So I think Matias had a fast airplane. Now he's got a good team behind him, and you can see the things. A, a pilot can't do it on his own. It's just not capable. Yeah. It's not possible. So it really is a big team effort now. Now, Mark, you're a busy guy. I follow your uh, social media all over the place, and you do a lot of air shows around here in the U.S., don't you? You're very, yep. very busy doing all that sort of stuff. Yeah, I'll do uh, about 14 air shows as well as all the air races, so I'm a busy guy. So, uh, you know, I guess the inevitable question that you're all asked in the years where there wasn't a race, when's it coming back? Not so much a factor for you because you're always busy. Yeah, no, it was when the when the race stopped in 2010, I just kept on keeping on and, and flew air shows like crazy, but I'm super happy the race is back. I really am a big, uh, a big advocate of the race. I think it's fun. It, it, for me, it's very interesting. It's a big challenge. Uh, so, you know, the air shows after a while it gets a little boring yeah so this is a good this is a good avenue as well we always talk a lot about our show about dream building and it's difficult to get young people into the cockpit of airliners these days to, to build that dream so it's very important i think for for this sort of stuff a real wow factor like i talked about before don't you think yeah i think the one thing that separates uh the red bull air race from any other aviation uh endeavor is that it touches the people. It makes people think, ah, oh, you know, because everybody wants to race. Can you run the fastest, drive your car the fastest, ride a bike the fastest? Everybody has a little competitive spirit in them, and this brings that out. So we get lots of emails from kids all around the world. How do I become a race pilot? What do I do? How, what's the first step? And that's awesome. So we're all trying to inspire um, and create the next generation of pilots, yep. and I think this, this race does that. Speaking of next generation, I notice you've been doing a lot of work with Cirrus Aircraft. You've got a Cirrus uh, sponsorship uh, here on your shirt as I'm talking to you. Um, I guess that's a next generation in itself, isn't it? Yeah, it really, it, it really is. And uh, I use the Cirrus airplanes uh, for my personal travel, but also in our flight school too, and know those guys very well. And their, you know, their outlook towards aviation is always trying to get better, always trying to do something new. Let's make it whether it's an interior or new airframe uh, or new modifications, they're always working. And so it's a really neat relationship because we think the same. Well, look, I know uh, you're going to be very busy and uh, you guys all look so relaxed considering you're going out to do qualifying. So I wish you all the best. I, I, I feel for you that it's yeah, it'll watching be a, you in those. it'll be a warm one. So. Yeah, but I hope you do really well. Thanks. Thank you very much. Good Thanks, to see you. Okay, Matt, we're standing here at the uh, start of the second day. Um, pretty good, strong position yesterday, finished fourth. Yeah, yeah. It's, a, um, it's an interesting field here where I think you know, the top eight are within a second almost. So, um, you know, it's a, it's a pretty tight race. It's a pretty quick track. And uh, race days come up um, with uh, some additional wins that we haven't had before. So Yeah, quite gusty today. So what's your plan for that today? Um, just not <laughs> making mistakes. So, um, so the, wind's, uh, the wind's in a favourable direction. If it, was, uh, if it was a strong westerly, that would be a bit more of an issue for us. Um, you know, one of the considerations is uh, the, the first uh, big turn in the track that will be carrying more speed. So um, we'll have to be figuring out what we're going to do. Uh, you know, just keep an eye on what the first couple of guys... Uh, do there but really I'm just planning on flying the, um, the same line I did yesterday just fly it uh, cleanly and, um, and then hopefully uh, we'll, we'll uh, move the Super 8 and then Final 4 I flew both runs um, yeah, identical runs basically and uh, we, we put out a, a 50.5 and a 50.0 so uh, you know that's got us in 4th place Now what are we going to do about Pete McLeod he, he's really come out of nowhere this season has he and he's right at the top of the field going into today Yeah he, he, Pete's always been a player that uh, you know was worth watching he uh, in, in the first two years of racing he didn't have a fast plane but uh, he was always flying 
uh, very cleanly and aggressively. So I uh, always knew that when he got a fast plane uh, under his belt, he'd be uh, he'd be right up there. So um, you know, we've. Um, I think you know I was milking everything out of my plane. Um, I think the edge is, this track is definitely suiting the edge, or an MXS with uh, with with winglets. So um, yeah, we've 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 probably got to do a little bit with our plane to um, to get it to turn a bit tighter. I think. Well, you're good friends with Nigel Lamb. Uh, he's the man with winglets. So maybe you'll have to take a leaf out of his book in future series. Yeah, yeah. So we've talked about that. Um, yeah, obviously he's not all that keen to uh, to lend me a set. So no, uh, we're, we're, we're probably going to have to go down uh, that uh, that track on our own and invest some money on winglets. Yeah, yeah, no worries. Matt, all the best for today, and uh, we'll hope to catch you at the press conference tonight on the podium. Thanks, mate. See you there. Cheers, mate. Cheers. Number 84, McLeod, you're cleared into the track. Smoke on. And knock it off, knock it off, knock it off. we got a pylon going down. Uh, go ahead and spin it back to uh, hold two. Ladies and gentlemen, unfortunately, the weather did not cooperate today. And in fact, the winds uh, even increased uh, more from this afternoon. So that has required us to discontinue all racing for today. So unfortunately, due to the weather and the winds and the wind gusts especially, we've had to discontinue the race for today. What that results in is that we will use yesterday's qualification round to determine the winner and that's where the race ended with that announcement there by the race director, Jim Matteo. Now, uh, the uh, results, as it turns out, from the qualifying the day before was uh, Pete McLeod from Canada first, Britain's Nigel Lamb second, and uh, Germany's Matthias Doldra coming in third. And uh, thanks to the Red Bull Air Race content pool, here's what they had to say post-race. You know, it feels great to um, be on the top of the podium, and uh, I've, uh, I've thought about this for a long time. It is a little different than I imagined it, um, kind of... Uh, getting there with a qualifying win rather than a, a true win on race day but um, there's not much we can do with the weather for sure I, I'm, I'm you know I'm very uh, happy with the way the points have worked out but I you know I feel a little bit flat about the way the day ended you know and it's really a pity for the fans and all the people who came out that we didn't uh, manage to keep racing uh, but uh, you know on the, on the on the point side I'm very very happy because you know, I raced against the the you know, Hannes and uh, Paul, and in the same conditions, and uh, and I, got, I I came out on top. So you know, even though it's based on yesterday, at least I feel happy that I beat those guys today, which is which is good. Na, natürlich super zufrieden. Endlich hat's mal geklappt, hier aufs Podium zu kommen. Hätte auch schon in Escort und in Dallas sein müssen, aber finally in Las Vegas, alles ist möglich. Oh please, Matthias, come on. I mean, every time uh, you're on the podium, you're satisfied, uh, almost satisfied. I mean, super satisfied is when you're first. Uh, we've had the chance today. Um, I had a pretty good run in the top 12. So if they would have counted the top 12, I would have been second. Would have been even better. But uh, finally, after two good races in Escort and Dallas, now we made it on the podium and looking really forward for the next race to win that one in. Okay, well, the Red Bull Air Race has been called off for the day, but that gives me a chance to talk to Rod Rakick from Open Airplane. How are you, Rod? I'm great. I'm so excited to be here. We've got so many uh, fans, followers, and friends that are also uh, attending uh, the race, so it's been great to meet up with so many people. It's great to see you again. It's great to see you up and around. Thanks, mate. It's, uh, it's nice to be up and around. And uh, the last time we met was at Oshkosh in uh, 2011, and we talked then about uh, your exploits with the Civil Air Patrol flying a great Australian product, the Air Van. But uh, since then, you've been very busy, and you've uh, actually set up a really great initiative, Open Airplane. Can you tell us a bit about the genesis of that and uh, what, what you do with that? Genesis is a good word for that. Uh, in 2011, it was just an idea. Uh, while we were at the air show, 
we started having conversations with folks around the industry, especially the aviation insurance industry, and we wanted to really create a way to make everybody's pilot certificate more valuable. So we really started partnering with the insurance companies first and grew from there a service that became open airplane. And really what we want to do there is make renting an airplane as easy as renting a car. That's the real challenge, isn't it? When you go to get an airplane now, if you haven't flown there before, you've got to go and do a checkout, you've got to do all the insurance stuff. I guess that's where it all came from. Yeah, it was our own frustration. It was that um, typically pilots are faced with having to waste half a day and hundreds of dollars anytime they go to try to rent an airplane anywhere from but their home base. And it's a bit ridiculous, and it really keeps a lot of folks from flying. It keeps pilots from uh, really getting as much value as they could uh, from their pilot certificate, and we aim to solve that. Now, insurance company is one thing, but interesting the setup. I mean, it must be huge. Obviously, the pilot community here in the U.S. is much larger than in Australia or probably any other country, but I guess there's a lot of regulatory uh, framework that you had to go through to set up. How, how did the FAA look upon this? So we designed the service really to fit within the framework of the current regulations here in the U.S. And nothing that we do with open airplane in any way conflicts with the FARs. So we're very inspired by the sharing economy. We're very um, much a collaborative consumption business model. Uh, One thing that may be a little unique is we're 100% legal here in the United States. Well, that's a good thing to hear. And uh, I want to talk to you a bit later on about uh, how we're going to expand this to other places, you know, like Australia. But we'll talk about that a bit later on. Love that. Let's talk about the universal pilot checker. How does the how does the process work? Um, you know, you're, you're a U.S. pilot with a U.S. certificate. You're coming in. You want to get on the program. How uh, how does you go about doing that? The universal pilot checkout does three things for the pilot. One, it resets the clock on the flight review that typically would be required every. 24 months. We're going to do it every 12 months. It offers the pilot up to a 10% discount on renter's insurance. And then finally, it gives the pilot access to the same make model aircraft in a network of flight schools, FBOs, and flying clubs all across the country. If I was an FBO operator here, and there's nothing better than the the great American FBO, I'll tell you, I wish we had them in Australia on a much greater scale. But it's really an advantage to them, isn't it? It gives them the opportunity to get more pilots coming in and spending money in their business. We think so. So when we first talked about this in 2011, it was really an idea and a business model and a concept. We took that idea and we turned it into some software and and really a community of people who wanted to see this happen. And so in June of 2013, Open Airplane launched with six locations around the United States, a couple of dozen airframes available in the network. Today, um, here October of 2014, we are now in 72 locations around the United States, all across the country, including Alaska and Hawaii, with over 250 aircraft available to rent through open airplane we've had over 8,000 pilots sign up and create profiles to fly with open airplane since we launched the company so it's a wonderful success really i mean those numbers in australia would be would be stunning to get 8,000 pilots into it but here in the u.s still a great start we've got a good running start out we still have a lot to go uh, when we started, we were limited to single-engine aircraft. We were limited to aircraft at low-altitude airports. Last January, we expanded the fleet to include light twins. So we've got uh, a growing number of light twins uh, coming into the network now. Uh, we've got everything from two-seat LSAs to tail draggers to twins now available through open airplane. 
you know, obviously when we uh, we learn to fly, we learn to read uh, charts and maps and all that sort of stuff. But there's, um, you know, a lot of people might be saying, well, what about local procedures? You fly in some complex airspace. I recently was flying in uh, San Francisco, some very, very complex airspace there. How do you deal with that uh, situation? It's a great question. So we always knew that when you go to do a checkout somewhere, uh, part of the reason for that is to sort of apply the tribal knowledge, the things that aren't necessarily on the chart or in the AFD that make flying at a particular airport more convenient, maybe safer, uh, letting you know where the great places to fly are. All that information is usually transmitted um, in this kind of, you know, archaic way of, you know, let's let's do that while we try to bounce around the pattern. And we could do that better. So we created what we call the, the local procedure briefing. Every operator in the open airplane network publishes is information that they otherwise would have to try to jam into your head while you're bouncing around in the pattern. Yeah, which is obvious. That's sometimes not the best way to learn it either when you're trying to, you know, fly the airplane. The experience that we designed is that when you're on your on your flight to your destination, you've got that information. You can consume that on your iPad or your smartphone or your desktop computer. Make that part of your pre-flight planning, your trip planning, your vacation planning, your business trip planning, and. That way, when you show up to rent with Open Airplane, you've used our software to find the aircraft that are available to rent. You've booked the reservation through our software, and you've now prepared yourself by being able to do the weight and balance for the aircraft and the tail number that you're actually going to fly, get all that detail on the avionics on the aircraft by tail number that you're going to rent that day, and really be prepared so that the experience we designed is that when you show up to fly, you are prepared as a pilot they hand you the keys and the clipboard. They ask if you have any questions. They walk you out to the aircraft. Fantastic. Now, foreign pilots, obviously. Now, I'm fortunate. I have a U.S. pilot certificate and an Australian pilot's license. But for somebody coming from the U.K., Canada, wherever, I guess particularly Canada when they're just across the border, is this something that foreign pilots can access as well? Yeah, so this has been popular with foreign pilots who have converted to FAA certificates. So many pilots from abroad convert their their, their IASA certificate or what have you to uh, an FAA certificate. And then they can use Open Airplane to fly when they come here. Joining Open Airplane, you can do that if you're a, a you know not a domestic pilot. You can input all your information. And then you can book a universal pilot checkout when you first come to the States. Now, the requirement for a foreign pilot, even if you have a converted certificate, is to have a, a current flight review. Well, every universal pilot checkout is a flight review. So you can really kill two birds with one stone. So we've got folks coming from Germany and Australia and all that, England, Canada, who are signing up for Open Airplane while they're at home, booking a universal pilot check with Open Airplane instead of just finding some random flight school to do an old-fashioned flight review. That means when they get here, they meet the requirement of having completed the flight review. They're checked out to fly at that particular flight school, but then they have this magic power. They can book and fly with over 70 locations across the U.S. while they're visiting the country. And let's face it, if they're coming to this country, then uh, there's a fair chance they want to travel around. That's what I've been doing the last three weeks. We built this for you, Steve. Oh, that's fantastic. I appreciate that, Rob. Okay, let's talk about um, expansion. Obviously, you want to expand it further across the U.S., but particularly with countries like Canada that border onto the U.S. Is this something that you see going across borders? I mean, obviously, we'd like to see... I'd love to see something like this in my country, but um, perhaps a bit closer to home to start with. The situation is that today we are limited to the U.S. market. 
uh, and registered aircraft. And whether you're a U.S. citizen or you're a, uh, a foreign pilot coming to fly in the U.S., uh, we're only doing unregistered aircraft in the U.S. We absolutely have our eyes on the horizon to see where else we can bring this next. Any place around the world where there's uh, a, a vibrant general aviation community is a great place for open airplane to come next. We're really just focused on proving the model here in the U.S. We've only been doing this for just over a year now, and we want to make sure that when we go uh, global that we've got the resources to do that. So it's really just a matter of time. And, of course, if people want to find out more about this, if they haven't checked it out, they should go to openairplane.com. Yes, uh, you can go to openairplane.com, and it works on any device. There's no app to download. Uh, You can find the pilot guide. You can find the map of locations. You can sign up and create a profile so that we can uh, keep you up to date. All at openairplane.com on a smartphone, on a tablet, on a desktop computer. It all just works. Well, it's a fantastic concept. I wish you every success with it. And I hope we can speak again soon and you can uh, tell us when it's coming to Melbourne. It's great to see you again. I look forward to being able to tell you that. Now, Brett, uh, we're standing next to a beautiful aircraft that has quite a bit of history uh, with New Zealand and uh, and also a little bit in Australia. Yep. Mate, what on earth possessed you to say, I'll buy a Strikemaster? Uh, foolishness. Foolishness, <laughs> I'd say. Um, I bought my first one uh, about uh, four years ago. Um, NZ6370, um, Strikemaster NZ6370. It's um, New Zealand-operated... 16 Stripe Masters that are side by side British advanced jet trainer slash um, ground attack aircraft from the British in the 70s and used them for pilot training for many years 25 years and um, they were all sold in Australia and then one came up and I figured well there's none flying in New Zealand and I I wanted to make, wanted to get into one and you know jet to the new warbirds for my generation I'm I'm sub 40 so uh, so yeah jets uh, (laughs) are Not, yeah. m- not for much longer, but I'm still sub-40 for a few months anyway. That's <laughs> what you grew up with, so you're used to seeing jets. Yep, absolutely. Yeah. When I grew up, it was jets flying over, not uh, Spitfires and Mustangs. So it was, and I still love Spitfires and Mustangs to get them growing, and I've got plenty of Harvard time, but yeah, I wanted to buy a jet. So uh, let's talk briefly about your flying history. How would you get started? Oh, I'm a, I'm, um, I've flown for many years. I flew gliders at university when I didn't have a lot of money and um, went solo in 16 in the gliders and I've got a few hundred hours from gliders and then um, went away for a, a year or two when I was getting jobs and girlfriends and life goes on and um, when I sort of um, found my now wife and we settled down into sort of... I decided, yeah, I want to finish my PPL and start the yeah, I knew when I, when I got my PPL I wanted to fly a warbird. It's been my passion. I love tail dragging. So flying warbirds, flying tail draggers has been my passion and now flying jet. So I've got a CPL and I've got probably three, four hundred hours in um, warbird type aircraft. So um, yeah. what I wanted to do. Now I understand you're a part owner of a Harvard. Yep, I own a Harvard chair and I'm the syndicate chairman of Harvard 52 syndicate as well. 52, so Harvard 52. And uh, so how many hours have you got? Oh, I've, I haven't got a huge number. I've got about 650 yeah. hours. So I've not missed, not massive amount. But um, so that's why I treat uh, jet flying with the utmost respect yep. it's not something you just walk into and you just jump in and fly it's something you really check with respect so how did you get yourself worked up ready to get oh it took a long time and I'm, it cost a lot of money <laughs> um, I probably wasn't you know I've got a busy job so if I had 
three weeks and I flew twice a day for those three weeks, then yeah, I would have knocked it off. But I was probably doing two flights a month and that took a, took a while. So what, what kind of aircraft did you fly to get up to speed with this, uh, to get ready for the Strike Master? Just the Strike Master. Okay. So yeah, you- well, remember, got to remember, it was de- uh, it's designed from the Jet Provost. So it's... Um, well, Percival Provost, and then into the Jet Provost, and then to the Strike Master. So it's from a Abbott Initio's um, perspective, actually, it's perfect jet to learn all. That's a very good point. So, but there's, it's not like there's a lot of flight schools running Strike Master. No, uh, so I know. Did, did you go to the states, the, U- the no, UK, or no, no, I did it all here. And I, but you know, it's it's like anything. If you're going to be successful in life, whether it's business, flying, whatever, you surround yourself with good people. And um, I surrounded myself with some fabulous people, good pilots, good instructors. You know, Dave Brown, Dean Beverly. You know, they've got. Uh, Dave Brownie, or Dave Brown, Brown as we know, as we call him, is um, you know he's got fifteen hundred yeah. hours in Strike Masters, did two, did two tours in the RNZAF as a as a uh, Strike Master instructor, so and just currently instructs in Warbirds and is the CFI for New Zealand Warbirds as well as the Strike Master Limited. So you know the, I've got yeah. great people to train me, and but I still play it safe. You know even yeah. after fifty sixty hours in these things. On cross countries, I'll take a safety pilot and I'll do all those sort of things. I'm not gun ho. I want to be. I want to enjoy this aircraft when I'm older, yep. and I take a very uh, pragmatic and safety approach to to these matters. I'm I'm not here to prove that I'm a Top Gun, Tom Cruise, <laughs> or, or Maverick, or whatever. Yeah. Excuse me, um, to anybody. You know, I just want to enjoy the aircraft, fly it, have fun. So you must enjoy it because you got two of the bloody things. Yeah, right? <laughs> well, the second one, I didn't set out to get a second Strike Master, I can tell you. The RNZF bought two batches, NZ6361 was two, NZ6370 was the first batch, and NZ7371 to NZ6376 was the second batch. The first batch actually has got a lot less fatigue life than the second batch because the second batch was used primarily for advanced strike, uh. or for strike training. Where these, these, the first batch were used primarily for um, pilot jet training. Um, slight difference, but it no, did no. make a difference. Uh, well, this one came up from a lovely family in um, Bustleton, the the hiders in Bustleton, Perth. Um, they were very, very nice people, and um, their dad bought it. First one sold in Australia, so it was in stock standard condition. Um, passed away mid last decade, and the aircraft was was in a hangar, hadn't been flown, and the family were had sold the hangar and they wanted to do something with it. They didn't know what to do with it, so they were just going to push it out. And I heard about it, and I thought, well, didn't really want a second one. But and what did the missus say? <laughs> well, I thought that was only going to be for spares. <laughs> Got that one past it. Yeah, so uh, I'm not sure I can use that one for the third time. But uh, <laughs> she must be very forgiving. She, well, she calls it my golf, and that's true. I don't play golf, and I hate golf. Well, I don't hate it. I'm just lousy at it. So I'd rather spend my time and money doing this. Yep. I love it. I love yep. it. That's awesome. And I understand you're doing uh, rides with them? Yes, we're over here. We're, um, we were the first Avincho Part 115 certification in New Zealand. Part, certifi- Part 115 excuse me, certification was all about getting um, experimental aircraft and balloon and gliders mm-hmm. to be able to take fair-paying passengers. And it just so happened after uh, many decades of gestation that it just happened to occur when I got the Strike Master flying. Nice so timing. it was, well, we might as well do it. So yeah. we spent, again, more money. A lot of money, but we've yeah we've got it certified and this and when six sixty two one standing next to me here um gets civilization certified next week or two it'll also be part one one five certified so so long term is um, that will do dogfighting. 
great. Now uh, she goes through quite a bit. Um, do you want to talk some numbers as as you know yeah, a lot as of our a, audience? Yeah, yeah, as a um, as a as a warbird, she's not she's not uh, the most economical. She's a pure jet, so unlike an L thirty nine, whatever goes into the engine goes out the back in noise. She burns a thousand lead a thousand pounds, a thousand liters, excuse me, a thousand liters at low level in an hour. Full noise. If you've got the throttle going, you'll be, it holds sixteen hundred liters, and you'll use that up hundred percent power. Use up in about twenty five minutes low well, level. We were standing around there over at the observation area watching you guys taxi by and there's two strike masters yeah, taxiing cool, from one eh? side of the field to the other it was great to see again and it's cool and um the guys were like wow this is great and i'm like yeah that looks like about one and a half to two thousand dollars worth of taxiing right there <laughs> no it's not, not too bad no, it's not too bad it's probably gonna be taxi just feel alone it'll probably be a couple hundred bucks what's the maintenance like in terms of hour per hour oh i haven't I don't think about it like that, to be blunt with you. I just pay the bills. Yeah. Um, it is. It, they're not too bad. As a military aircraft, they're not too bad. Really, the biggest prob- um, problem would be the uh, electrics, mm. British electrics. The lovely wiring. Yeah, the lovely wiring. <laughs> no. I have a couple of friends who refer to uh, British engineering the same way they refer to military intelligence. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, uh, I, I, it's, an, it's a complicated cockpit. I imagine the wiring's pretty full on. Yep. And, yeah, you mentioned when you're doing your presentation that getting parts can be tricky. Yes, it can. But you know, you don't do it for the money. You do it. There's no rational reason. It's no. all love, so it's, isn't it? It's a horrible investment, and you do it because you love. You want to do it. You love to do yeah. it. it. Brings a smile on your face. I mean, there's no rational reason to buy an aircraft like this. It, it um, yeah, we get a bit of money out of rides, and you know, to be fair, Stripe Master Limited has has washed its face. But end of the day, you know, as an investment, it's lousy. You know, yeah. you better to, far better to check in the stock exchange or buy a couple <laughs> of rental properties, whatever, and do it. But um, yeah. But it's not as much fun. No, it's not what you're in for. No, absolutely not. Well, Brett, thank you so much for thank bringing you. these back to New Zealand. It's great to see them flying here. I grew up with them flying. I was not far from Ohakia. Cool. So, you know, I saw these in the A4s, so it's great to see them back in the skies where they belong. Thank you. And today's taxi is probably the first time two Stripe Masters, Stripe Masters have taxied together in 25 years. Yep. No, it's awesome, awesome. to see. Thank you. Thanks, Thanks mate. Cheers. Okay, so what can you tell me about this particular fox moth? Well, this uh, particular fox moth was imported into New Zealand in about 1948, went to the Marlborough Air Club, and they used it as part of their air transport uh, licence. And then it got sold into private hands back in... And then it got sold into private hands, uh, uh, I think it was in the 1950s, and was used down the west coast of the South Island you know, doing a variety of work, including hauling white bait and crayfish and things like that. And, of course, being a wooden frame, it eventually... And it got bent a couple of times, you know, a lot of... They, they get a little bit heavy and they like a lot of runway, the old fox moth, compared to the tiger and that, and I think there's a few strip accidents with them. And this one finished up in disrepair. Being wooden framed, the framing got into serious uh, state and, and uh, so there was a group of New Zealanders got together and they uh, built the jigs and, and built five uh, I think they built five new total airframes for uh, of the Foxmoth and this is one of them it was completed in 2008 and first flew 2008-2009 uh, and uh, it's a beautiful restoration uh, good work of uh, Stan Smith at Smith Tech here at uh, Dairy Flat Airfield yeah, absolutely beautiful work yeah. It's, it looks pristine. It, it's almost like it just came off the production line. 
It certainly is, yeah, and it's uh, as I said, it's uh, it's a pleasure that uh, I'm a very lucky man that I've got it in to, in my care to, and uh, used to to be able to fly it when I feel like it. Yeah. Now, two very quick questions. One, the um, bubble canopy is a mod, is a new mod, or was no? It like the a... bubble canopy was part of the Canadian mod. Yeah, and like did with the chipmunk. That's right, exactly the same as the chipmunk. And uh, the the other one that they didn't do on uh, uh, took off it in Canadian model was the folding wings, and uh, they never had that. Uh, the English old 1930s English fox moths had uh, wings that folded up, uh, which would thus explain the uh, yeah. hinge unit at the bottom there. That, That's that, right. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. That's to secure it. Yeah. Yeah. Excellent. Yeah. And the propeller on the leading edge of the left wing. Oh, well, it's just a propeller-driven uh, generator, standard old 12-volt generator, probably something like you saw in your Morris 8s or Austin 7s or something. And, uh, yes, it works. It's connected in. Um, uh, I checked it today on the flight. It's pumping out 6 amps on the meter, so uh, it all works nicely. keeps Keep, the battery charged yeah, up. Something that they didn't really have in the old days. <laughs> well, uh, the Canadians put that on as well. Oh, yeah. is that, so, yeah. oh okay. Yeah. They, those Canadians were really clever over uh, there, weren't they? They certainly were, yeah. <laughs> yeah. They advanced the uh, aeroplane a, a little bit, yeah, yeah. Grant Newman, you've got a bloody brilliant name, mate. I can't say anything more than that. But you've just had your ride in the Foxmoth. What's your thoughts? Amazing. Absolutely amazing. A lot quieter than I thought it would be. Um, being right there next to the to the engine, it was much quieter than I thought. But uh, fantastic view. Can understand, you know, why the why people travelled like that in those days. It was just incredible. Yeah. yeah. Cool. Yeah. Well, thanks for that. It was great to share the cabin with you. And Likewise. Awesome flight. Yep. Cheers, Cheers mate. Yeah. Hey, this is Grant. Hey, g'day mate, how are you? I'm out here at the airport, I'm doing a bit of plane spotting. Oh, what a shocking coincidence, I'm doing some plane spotting too. I don't see you anywhere down here. Hey, take a look, listen to that mate, that's that brand new Boeing 737, the Retro Roo. Oh, the Retro Roo, yeah, I'm looking at it right now too. I don't see you anywhere around here, where are you? I'm at home. You're spotting from home? Yeah, I'm reading the spotter's mag. Spotter's mag? You reading a magazine? I thought you were only into electronic stuff. I am into electronic stuff. That's how I'm reading the magazine. It's an e-mag, mate, e-magazine. You go to www.spottersmag.com and then you go down and find Spotters Mag Australia New Zealand and click on that and then bang, you're in there and you're reading it and it's fantastic. It's uh, online. You can read it on your tablet or on your uh, PC. It's great. If only I'd known that, Grant, I wouldn't have come all the way out here to the airport. Yeah, well, mate, you could also take a copy with you on your tablet out to the airport. Then you could have the sights, the sounds and all the extra information from the magazine. That's fantastic, mate. A magazine by enthusiasts for enthusiasts. What more could you want? So better get that tablet out and get on to www.spottersmag.com right now. Winning. See you later. Hi, I'm Dave Homewood from the Wings Over New Zealand show, New Zealand's own aviation podcast series, where we feature the stories of Kiwi pilots, warbird restorers, Air Force veterans, home builders, 
historians, authors, modelers, stories from aviation museums and associations, air show reports, and much, much more. The Wings Over New Zealand show loves to bring you the stories of Kiwis who've made their mark on aviation. So find the Wings Over New Zealand show online. Find more about it on the world famous Wings Over New Zealand Aviation Forum and like us on Facebook. We also love to listen to Steve, Grant and the team at the Plane Crazy Down Under Show. Find this and other great shows at the Aviation Media Network. The Voices in Your Head.com. And welcome back, folks. Well, I was Grant. What are you doing? What, are you, I, what do you think I'm doing? I'm using my Android to assess runway. Uh, you know what? I have the feeling that ever since I had that infomercial running about an hour ago in this episode, you've been doing nothing but playing with that Android tablet of yours ever since. Oh, actually, it's my phone. Um, yeah, I haven't got a tablet that'll run it yet, but uh, I'm looking forward to getting my new phone in January because I'm hoping to get the uh, Galaxy 5 and that's got a bigger screen. Oh, the miracle of theatre. You've ruined the illusion already, Grant. Oh, sorry, mate. Sorry, but uh, those who know me know that I'm just pining to have the money to buy a tablet. <laughs> yeah, well, and Android, you must be pretty wrapped. Uh, you know, as, as soon as I heard that uh, Baz and the crew were making uh, an Android version of it, I thought, oh, McCarran will be all over all over that. Oh, like me on a six-pack. Here I am yeah. playing with the Android versions, yes. <laughs> oh, well, good news. Well, Grant, uh, just before we kick off um, this last part of the show, in fact, our last segment for uh, 2014, uh, we've Ooh. probably got to talk about uh, who it was that you were flying with here. I don't think we actually uh, managed to uh, find his name in that. Uh, oh, yeah, that would be bad of my editing. I'm sorry about that. But uh, that was Graham Wood uh, who was flying the... Uh, DH-83 for me, the Foxmoth, and uh, yeah, he's a lot of fun. Quite the history, as you heard there, with the uh, with his career, but uh, yeah, great guy and gave us a wonderful flight. Yeah, it certainly sounds like it. And I must say, as much as I'm usually not a fan of the uh, sort of bi-wing, really slow aircraft, uh, you know, you know my penchant for sort of lightly more modern aircraft. But uh, I tell you what, um, that, that sounded the sound effects that you recorded there, and I had the advantage of listening to the the full track of those as I uh, cut them down <laughs> for the edit, and it sounded really cool. Yeah, and the funny bit was that it turns out that my uh, co-passenger was also named Grant. So uh, yeah, uh, Graham had two Grants on board. Go figure. Yeah, three, three G. Oh, yeah, it must be something about uh, Kiwis. You're every second Kiwi I know is called Grant. Well, I'm sure Dave must be one of the. Uh, f- oh, I was going to say one of the odd Kiwis, but he killed me for that. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> I probably already get enough trouble for putting that sheep sound effect at the start of that last segment. Uh, so yeah, I'm not. Yeah, I'm not delivering any more Kiwi jokes. Uh, I was definitely trying to reach for the bleeper on that one, but it was too late. I was. <laughs> <coughs> Distracted by Oz Runways. Well, somebody we never like to bleep is the mailman. We haven't seen him for a while, Grant, but here he comes down the street. You know, in a world of Australia Post getting all fancy new motorbikes, it's nice to know that our pre-recorded mailman still goes on a push bike. Yeah, well, that says a lot about our budget, doesn't it? (laughs) It certainly does. In fact, if people knew the truth about how I actually cobbled that sound effect together, they'd be amazed. But anyway. Yeah, well, you know, just because you got your kids with the bike and the cards and the bell and anyhow. No, it's an actual Australia Post mailman, dear listeners, as far as you know. (laughs) And we're sticking to it. And look... As tradition would have it, I've got some email here. Well, you know, Grant, it's been so long since we put an episode out. We've actually had tons of email, but uh, I thought we'd just pick a couple here. And uh, this one here came in from Luke Murphy, Grant, uh, back on the 15th of September. And it's it's actually pretty typical of a lot of the emails we've been getting. So I thought we'd just read this one out because uh, Luke's been a very long time listener to the show and basically says, pod faded? Please don't pod fade. So Grant, do you want to address that yet again? (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, you know, this we're reading this one out because it's one of the shorter ones of the uh, various ones we get uh, hassling us about (laughs) 
not pod fading. But uh, yeah, thanks, Luke. You know, he uh, even offered a donation to the beer fund uh, to help creativity. And well, yeah, never never let a donation go astray for the beer fund. That's for sure. Yeah, in but, fact, I think uh, memories is a couple of months ago now, and I'm pretty sure Luke actually did make a donation. So you know. Yeah, I believe you did, and I think I burped my way through that one. But, uh, <clears throat> you know, no, honestly, it went into hosting. Yes, hosting, honest. Hosting, yes, <laughs> that's right. Hosting Grant's Beer Fund, no doubt. <laughs> uh, hey, I've been trying to cut back. <laughs> it's that keep kilos out of the cockpit thing, mate. But, uh, no, look, we're not going to pod fade. We're, we're going to get slower, but we're not going to pod fade as long as we can. We're going to keep getting content. We've got a stack to work through. We're always recording new stuff with other people. And if you can bear with us, we're just going to get them out as and when we can around our insane day jobs. Yeah, we, we just figure that the longer we make you wait for a podcast, folks, you know, um, the more you'll appreciate it when it comes. Isn't that the way it works? That's what my mother always used to tell me. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, maybe yeah. not about podcasts. I don't think, you know, computers existed when I was a kid. But anyway. No, no. I think, um, yeah, you know, absence make the heart grow fonder. Yeah, I've heard that crap before. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> oh, well, we've had a lot on this year, but, um, you know, it's been an interesting year. We might talk about that in a minute, Brant. But uh, another email that we got here that I really liked came from uh, Andrew Brown. Andy Brown over in the UK, Grant, uh, you remember that one he sent us a great uh, link to a video uh, showing the uh, looks like the US Navy Hornet ball always great yep. to be looking at uh, stuff like that that's the one mate uh, the strike fighter ball from 2014 some great footage of F-18s and uh, you know I was sitting there looking at it going you know what our F-18 footage from the uh, tie-up DVD was pretty good and probably would have held its own against that lot. Now, Grant, uh, one more email, uh, and we've had quite a few of these lately, so I just thought we'd address these. Um, this one uh, we just picked out at random here came from Sean Dwyer, uh, came in uh, just recently, um, and uh, thanks uh, for writing in, Sean, and everybody else who's written in offers of help, uh, and this uh, centres around Avalon. Now, of course, next year, 2015, uh, is an Avalon year, and uh, yes, we're planning to have a presence there. Maybe a little different to what we've done in previous years, but uh, you know, we haven't really sorted that out, to be honest, so <laughs> won't talk too much about that, but uh, yeah, he's a uh, offering to uh, you know help us in any way he can and he's a very keen aviation photographer and would like to come in and uh, give us some hand well uh, Sean and to all the other people that have written in with those offers we really appreciate it we haven't really decided exactly what we're going to do at Avalon this time and to be really honest and it's not that we don't appreciate the offers of help but we do have a pretty big uh, roster here of uh, people and uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, getting media passes for everybody is um, not really an easy thing it's it's difficult enough to get the number of media passes we managed to extract from the <laughs> Avalon air show people as it is and uh, I'm not sure how we'd go more and of course um, Stephen Pam our director of photography has been with us right from day one and he gets priority he gets the first call well he took the first photo of you and I standing in front of the Moorabbin uh, air traffic control tower the fool the fool I know I know that was was he thinking that was our logo in the early days before he got the uh, really cool well well done nicely drawn picture of the dude with wings now that said folks if you are going to Avalon in fact if you're anywhere around and you'd ever like to send us in some uh, great images that you've taken aviation images please do we'd like to share them uh, primarily on our Facebook feed it seems to be where most of our listeners uh, congregate these days but uh, I might also mention too and you heard the ad there for uh, Spotters Magazine the Australia and New Zealand version of Spotters Magazine uh, I'm sure the guys there at uh, Spotters Mag would uh, love to get some high quality images and who knows maybe they'll even end up including them in their magazine uh, Mark Jessup uh, does a really great job on that so uh, you know maybe that's another option for people as well Grant yeah I agree and uh, definitely worth plugging Spotters Mag it's fantastic can't recommend it enough uh, a lot of fun some great photos some good articles and uh, yeah it's all there electronically yay if, folks if you have a look at the, the work that the guys are putting into that it's really a first class publication 
And uh, if you like what you're seeing in the Australian New Zealand edition, uh, I should also mention if you go to spottersmag.com that there's um, different editions for different parts of the world. So uh, it's not just Australia and New Zealand, but uh, yeah, obviously we'd like people to look at aviation in our part of the world, but it's yeah. a worldwide thing. So yeah, wherever, wherever, whichever the part of the world that you're interested in, there's some really high quality images there. And unlike rather uh, picky websites, I'm looking at you, airliners.net. <laughs> You've never forgiven them. I've never forgiven them yet. Well, actually, I've got seven photos on there, would you believe? Yeah, I yeah. Yeah, this is yeah. being done with a completely different philosophy to that, and it's all about. In fact, you know, they're they're really looking to uh, you know generate more interest in aviation, which is in really you know right up our alley here. So we're very supportive of that. I should mention one more email that's come in. Our good friend Mick Mick from the Frankston Line Grant, he's been back uh, sending us another very very long email, and uh, as usual, it's rather cryptic, and we won't go reading it out here, or we'll you know be going for another hour. <laughs> very very lengthy, but uh, Mick, we do appreciate your support and your kind words, mate, and uh, thanks very much for for listening. And uh, he's also offered uh, some. Help with editing now, folks. Don't offer to help with editing because you know I oh. love to give people work. Oh yeah, and Steve has very high quality standards. It's taken me years to get to the point where you'll allow me to edit content. Yeah, and even then, it's under duress. But hey, you know, I, I've got to say about Mick's uh, email. Uh, a couple of points. Uh, you, know, you referred to our uh, previous episode on the F-35 as being one of the best he's heard about it. And if you want to know anything about it, that's where you go. So thanks for that, Mick. I really appreciate that as we put a lot of effort into that one. And yeah, he's he's recently moved. He's still on the Franger line, but he's a, in a little bit of a different area now, a little closer to one of the southern approach paths and departure points from Moorabbin Airport. So he's set himself up with a bit of an observation deck and uh, is quite enjoying watching the aircraft come and go. Yeah, well, I bet he would. Maybe we should move in with him, Grant. Oh, I think we probably should go down and visit, take yeah. a few beers, kick back, relax, enjoy yeah. the show. Absolutely. You know, I was actually up in the tower at Moorabbin the other day, part of the uh, my favourite time of the year every December, come close to Christmas a couple of days beforehand. I take around all the Christmas cheer for a few of the balloon companies and I go visit the Met Bureau and I visit a few of the air traffic control groups that we work with at Tullamarine, the big airport with the, the radar guys, and then up Essendon Tower, we spend a lot of time with them. And occasionally at Moorabbin, we, uh, when we land there, they're open. So, uh, yeah, I've wound up ending the day there and there's three folks up there plus a fourth on standby and they're pretty damn busy they were, they were keeping themselves pretty occupied so that's always good to see yeah well you know Moorabbin is a very very busy airport despite the hideously high uh, user fees that they have at that airport these days but uh, yeah, it's, it's still a very very busy terminal and uh, despite all of the not in my backyard groups that uh, seem to surround themselves by moving into that area right next to the <laughs> airport I think it'll be there for a long time to come and that in my opinion is a great thing I'm certainly hoping so mate because uh, it's 20 minutes down the road so if I ever get the money to do my fixed wing guess where I'm going well let's move on to shout outs we've already mentioned spotters mag uh, that's on our list here but uh, once again folks so uh, really make sure you we go and hit that one. But let's talk about our friend over in the UK from the Plane Talking UK podcast, Carlos Stebbings. He's got himself a pilot's license. Good on you, mate. Oh, he hasn't got it yet. He hasn't got it yet. He's working his way towards it. But uh, yeah, he's he's uh, taking the steps. He's uh, he, I don't think he's quite at solo yet. He and Mark Maiden from the Maiden Flight podcast, the two of them were talking about it when Mark Maiden came on as a special guest of one of their recent shows. And uh, Carlos and Matt were chatting with him and they were talking about uh, you know learning and solo coming up and all this kind of stuff. So on your Carlos, that's fantastic news. It's going to be great to have you uh, in the pilothood world coming up. And uh, yeah, it's a lot of fun, their show. I'm really enjoying it. Uh, as they say, it's uh, by passengers for anyone. Uh, they're enthusiasts. They, uh, they're the classic British spotters going out there and uh, shooting aircraft photos and going to air shows and things like that. Uh, it's a lot of fun. 
And, uh, yeah, they give an, a, an interesting spin on the latest news and what's going on and where they've travelled and things like that. And you've got uh, Carl Stebbings, a.k.a. Carlos, the one who's learning to fly. Uh, Simon Woolton, who's uh, right into the military side of things and loves the Red Arrows, of course. And uh, they've just recently been joined by Matt Smith, who's joined the show. And uh, he drives buses but loves uh, loves aircraft. And, yeah, the, the three of them make a, make for a good show. And as I said, one of their latest episodes had Mark Maiden from Ireland on. He runs the uh, Maiden Flight podcast. So it was a great show and uh, cool to hear what it's like flying over there. And, of course, they set, share one part of flying that's very similar to ours. It's bloody expensive for them. certainly so, is. And I used to be yeah. a bus driver myself, Grant, so there you go. There you go. There you go. But, uh, yeah, they seem to have not quite as good a weather as we get down here, so um, even here in Melbourne. But uh, despite that, Carl's working towards it and he's going to become a pilot, which is fantastic. Fantastic. Where's that studio audience, Grant? Here they are. Yeah. See that? You know, that's I've actually happens. got the soundboard booted up tonight. <laughs> I was going to say, that's what happens when you keep this studio audience bottled up so long. It takes a while for them to go, huh, what? Oh, yeah, yay. <laughs> now, Grant, I've got to tell you that the older I get, the longer that flight from Australia to the US gets. I must tell you, uh, you know, it, it, uh, well, what was it this time? I think it was about 35,000 hours this time. But uh, anyway, <laughs> about three or four hours into the flight as I'm sitting right down in the back of this uh, A380, right down the very back, and it's a long way back. I happen to look up and uh, the captain is standing there. And as if that didn't surprise me enough, he said, oh, you must be Steve. And I'm going, well, uh, possibly, yeah. possibly, <laughs> yes, maybe. Anyway, Captain Harry Wubbin, uh, now, somebody must have worded him up, Grant, that I was on that flight. And for that, I am very grateful because Harry's a really lovely guy. He, he took a yeah, significant amount of time out of his, uh, obviously, his break time to uh, come down and have a chat to myself and my family. And uh, it was it was really great, a real privilege. And um, I'll tell you what, I felt like a bit of a celebrity sitting down there with the captain coming and talking to only me Ooh-hoo. and my wife and my kids. So it was really good. And uh the very kind offer to once we had safely landed and shut down the plane, of course, at Los Angeles, um, he actually gave my uh, family a, a tour of the cockpit, and uh, that was a real privilege, and I really appreciate that. And to the Qantas pilot that uh, may or may not have teed that up for me, and you know who you are, and I know who you are, um, I very, very much appreciate that. Uh, it could be the uh, same Qantas pilot who helped get uh, Nikolai a uh, a bit of a tour of the uh, cockpit of a Qantas aircraft just before he left, left Chile uh, on the ground before they started getting everything ready to go. Uh, the captain, he actually had his name called out over the PA <laughs> and you saw people looking at him like, uh, yeah, what's wrong? Are you going to the wrong gate or something? And uh, yeah, he went over there and they escorted him on board and he got to check out the cockpit, chat with the flight crew and then was shown to his seat well before everyone else. Well, he was right chuffed with that. It's good to be the king. Oh, mate. No, look, if uh, you find a lot of tech crew are really keen on uh, showing people the cockpit before or after the flight, and it's not uncommon. I'll stick my head in the, uh, you know, as, as we're leaving the, the plane at the end, I'll ask the uh, cabin crew if I can just say a quick word to the tech crew, if, especially if the door's open. And nine times out of ten, they're like, yeah, they've got time, and I'll just stick my head in and say thanks and have a quick chat about what they've been doing and where they're at. and. And, you know, let them know it's appreciated. And I've done many, many flights with Grants on commercial airliners now, folks, and I can tell you that the other thing Grant does is, as our resident marketing person is he enters the cockpit with PCDU business cards. <laughs> yeah, or a cap and occasionally the odd magazine with a PCDU card attached to it. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Here, let me wallpaper the cockpit. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, <laughs> spread the word to the target audience, mate. <laughs> yeah. Well, it is our end of year show, and there's so many shout outs we'd like to do. Um, I suppose we have to trim the list a little, otherwise, we'll be here all night. But one uh, one person I really would like to uh, really go for a, a big word of thanks to is Paul Burfitt from 64.com. Uh, Paul contacted us earlier in the year and uh, offered uh, some help. 
to us, uh, you know, basically with uh, some ideas. Now, Paul's an actual businessman. <laughs> hey. And uh, unlike us, and uh, boy, does he know, he's, it's been a real education. He's uh, taught us a lot this year about marketing and, uh, you know, how to go about uh, really working in a more, um, shall we say, a commercial sense with what we've been doing. It's something we've been striving to do for a long time here at PCDU. And it was actually Paul that helped us get some corporate work this year with Airbus. And we really, really appreciate that. It was a real experience. And uh, yeah, it's, it's been fantastic. So thanks to Paul for that. Yeah, definitely. Thanks, mate. Legend. And uh, that's uh, that's really the reason, Graham. Well, that in a way is one of the reasons we haven't been able to put out so many podcasts this year because we've been busy doing other things and uh, getting out there onto the A350 uh, when it came to Sydney and uh, then again when it came to Perth. I mean, those are big projects and uh, you know, that did take a lot of work. But, you know, it's really great that uh, we've had the opportunity to go and do that stuff and uh, once again trying to fit it in all around our, the rest of the things that we do in our day-to-day working lives and yep. family lives is, uh, you know, often a challenge. But between that and producing a DVD, although we've only put out eight episodes of the show this year, but um, you know, we did also produce a DVD this year, so that that did take a huge, a lot more work than we thought, as we mentioned before. <laughs> it, uh, yeah, we have a much better appreciation for uh, the famous co- comment from Mr. Tupper, aka Stephen Force from the Airspeed Show, as he says, "The movie that ate my podcast." And uh, yeah, it, it it really was a lot of effort. We were late getting it over the line, but uh, everyone's really wrapped raving about the uh, DVD and very impressed with it. So that's a good thing. And uh, it's a you know, bit of a tribute to Stephen Pam's perseverance as well. Perseverance by putting up with us. Oh, Pr- that too. That's yeah. a given. <laughs> but, hey, that was one of the good things about having Burf on. When Paul Burfitt was helping us with the uh, A350 video shoots, it let Stephen Pam do still photography. He loved that. Surrounded by aircraft doing stills instead of having to be our video guy. He was very happy with that. Well, I guess that wraps up 2014. I guess looking forward briefly to uh, 2015, as we've mentioned, it is an Avalon year. Um, you know, they started to, uh, as you've heard from uh, you know some of the uh, interviews that you, we had there at the start of the show, it looks like it's going to be another, uh, you know, as most Avalons are, let's face it, it's a trade show primarily, and there's going to be a lot of heavy metal there. I'm looking forward to some, some different um, military aircraft uh, being there this year. It looks like we're going to have a few different types showing up this time, perhaps from previous shows. I'm hoping so, mate. I'm hoping so. But uh, for me, I'm really looking forward to the World War One replicas. Uh, Vintage Aviator Limited from New Zealand's bringing across some replicas, not their rebuilds, but heck, I'm happy with the replicas. Uh, I do kind of like the old stuff. It's not just because I fly balloons, which were very prevalent in World War One, of course, but um, <laughs> it's, it's yeah, I, I just am really quite enamoured with uh, the old old aircraft and when you get up close and personal with them and you see them and you you hear from the guys who fly them and you get a feel for what was involved uh the people flying aircraft a hundred years ago mate they, they definitely walked bow-legged they were some very impressive people and to have the the guts and the energy to go up and and risk their lives and and what were very, very basic machines back then is just amazing. My hope is that uh, Avalon this year will focus a bit more on GARA and some of the lighter aircraft types. Um, it does tend to be a little bit uh, heavy on the heavy aircraft, if I can put it that way. And uh, I know there's lots of reasons for that, lots of commercial reasons for that. But, uh, you know, I know that uh, some of the, uh, you know, smaller aircraft producers or aircraft type producers, I guess, uh, are pretty keen for, uh, you know, a bit more uh, focus on their sector as well. After all, anyone who uh, starts off flying something really, really big has to start off by flying something well, slightly smaller. So I think we should, uh, you know, really uh, put a bit more focus on that. Now, if I was running the world, that's the way it would be, mate. Yes. Well, if I ran the zoo, said young Gerald McGrew, yes, the life would be different. Mm. <laughs> but no, we're looking forward to Avalon. And also at the end of the year in November, looking way forward, it's Warbirds Down Under uh, once again. And I was fortunate enough to be there in 2013. And I've still got all the content recorded from them. We've released some of it. 
uh, over the last uh, few episodes this year. But uh, I've got a whole lot of it to package up and we might release that in the near future just to help get everyone all excited about uh, 2015's show. And if you haven't bought your tickets, they do sell pretty quickly. They are for sale uh, and available. So I'd highly recommend that you start thinking about it if you're looking for an amazing experience of uh, Australian aviation warbird kind of environment the Tomorrow Aviation Museum's Warbirds Down Under 2015 in November, November 21st to be exact, is definitely one not to be missed. Fair enough. Well, I guess uh, as we do at the uh, the end of every year, we'd like to uh, you know wrap up by uh, thanking everybody who's uh, listened to us this year. It's always a real privilege when we uh, you know go to so much trouble to put this show out for everybody. That uh, you know, well, I, I often say to people, Grant, when we first started putting this show out, we were uh, very happy if uh, twenty or thirty people downloaded the show. But uh, despite the fact we've only put out eight of them this year, we're uh, still getting really strong download numbers. They measure in the thousands, and it's a real privilege. And we'd like to thank everybody uh, who's uh, stuck with us for all these years. We're going into year number six. I believe. Yeah, that's right, mate. Uh, we're we're ploughing our way through year number six. We're well and truly in it. And uh, yeah, it was kind of funny when we switched to the uh, monitoring system that tells us actual people downloading as opposed to uh, hits on the files. Because of course, you have the situation where a downloader can break a file into four bits and they could count as four hits. So this takes it back down to people. And the numbers suddenly went back to small numbers and we were like, oh, hang on. But uh, yeah, then we've realized it's it's real people out there and those thousands of, of downloads are real people. And it's just an honour to be listened to by so many people. Now, as is tradition, Grant, I'd like to thank uh, my wife for putting up with me and once again being a podcast widow for another year. And I'm, <laughs> now, Grant, uh, last year we could only say your fiancé, but we can actually, uh, you know, say this year something a little different. Yes, that's right. Kit's now my wife as of February 2014. She was mad enough to tie the knot and uh, we're still very happy together, uh, which is good because, uh, you know, we've only been together for about 10 years. So. And of course, Grant, uh, as the, uh, the producers of this show, we should uh, take this opportunity to thank once again, uh, everybody that's uh, helped work on the program this year, there's this, we seem to be getting an ever-increasingly large roster, but uh, for everyone who's uh, helped out on the show this year, so many names, we won't go through them all now, but uh, you know, folks, uh, have a look at the Who We Are page. You'll be surprised to know it's more than just me and Grant. In fact, there's lots of people helping out on the show, and uh, it's, it's really great that we can get such uh, great coverage around Australia, even across in New Zealand and other parts of the world as well. So uh, let's hope that continues in 2015. That's the one, mate. It's, uh, it's great to have a good team working with us, and it really really helps make us who we are it's not just us bearing all the weight Uh, there's other folks contributing content and helping out with events and things like that and yeah couldn't do it without all our friends helping out Okay, mate. Well, I think before we get all all, um, all sentimental and everything at the end of 2014, it's time to move on and get ready for 2015. Here's hoping it's an even better year than 2014 has been. And uh, as Mick from the Frankston line likes to say, may 2015 be the best year of our lives. I second that, folks. So uh, until we see you again in the new year, stay safe, folks. Have a great new year and fly safe. You've been listening to Plane Crazy Down Under, hosted by Steve Vischer and Grant McCarran. Full show notes for this and all our episodes are at plainecrazydownunder.com. You can find us on Twitter as PCDU and on Facebook, Google+, YouTube and Vimeo. Feedback, suggestions, advertising inquiries. Email them through to contact at plainecrazydownunder.com or mail to Post Office Box 70, Cranbourne, Victoria, 3977, Australia. Plain Crazy Down Under is a Southern Skies online media production. folks at the Department of the Bleeding Obvious have asked us to make this statement. The views and opinions we present in this podcast are ours and do not necessarily represent those of groups we work with or are associated with. 
although we think they probably should. We certainly don't claim to be experts, we're just opinionated enthusiasts who are willing to comment publicly on the world around us. This show is intended as entertainment and any education that may occur is purely coincidental. As with anything in life, it is your responsibility to determine what does or does not work in your situation and to seek out suitable guidance and or instruction. This podcast is released under a Creative Commons non-commercial by attribution license. For more details on this license and our contact details, please visit our website at www.playingcrazydownunder.com. Thanks, folks. on board was also Grant. Uh, side note, did you put the uh, quick chat I had with Grant Newman about the experience? Yes, I did. Yep, okay, cool. <laughs> okay. Yeah, and the funny bit was that it turns out that my uh, co-passenger was also named Grant. So, uh, yeah. Yeah. Okay, we'll just pause for a moment while they are in the door. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, oh, so he's actually going to fire up and turn around. You're not going to, there's no tug. Plus, it was like you have to do some editing, you slack you. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Thank you for Timbo's Tarmac version 2. <laughs> I thought you were about to say it's like driving with me in the RX-7, but anyhow. <laughs> well, yeah, there is that. <laughs> Actually, I have never ridden in that RX-7. No, you've just heard the stories from the people with white hair who have. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Yeah, no, um, actually I fired up Binky the other day, uh, had to move him from uh, one part of the driveway into the garage after we finally made space to put him back inside and then fired him up again the other day to because uh, Truckosaurus, the um, Land Cruiser that I'm driving at the moment, had uh, flat battery, so we jump-started with the RX-7. It was great. <laughs> Grant, you've broken another car. I didn't break it. <laughs> um, but somehow we managed to leave an interior light on overnight and it drained the damn battery. Bloody hell. <laughs> Who knew?